This episode is brought to you by Grasshopper Climbing. I got to climb with Boone Speed and try out the Grasshopper Board for two days last summer when I was in Salt Lake City, and I immediately fell in love with the Grasshopper Board. I'm an engineer, and whenever I climb in a new gym or on a new kind of training board, I'm always noticing little things that bug me or that I would change. With the Grasshopper Board, I can honestly say I wouldn't change a thing. They put a ton of thought into their hold shaping and their layout, and I think this board has the highest bang-for-your-buck training value of any board I've ever climbed on. I totally got my ass kicked trying a bunch of V7s that day. They were super fun to climb on, and they felt hard for the right reasons, not weird or tweaky. The movement was complex and interesting. You had to get the body positions right, but it was super powerful as well and requires you to try really hard to hang on with your fingers. I think the grasshopper board is really good for gaining finger strength, which is something I'm always working on. And the best part is that the grasshopper board is adjustable. You can adjust the angle of steepness no matter which version of the grasshopper board you purchase. This board is for everybody. No matter what level you're currently climbing at, the grasshopper board has thousands of possible climbs you can do. It's like having an entire climbing gym right in your garage. If you want to learn more, head over to grasshopperclimbing.com or check them out on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing. And if you love what you find and decide to invest in your very own grasshopper board, be sure to tell them I sent you because the folks at Grasshopper are offering you guys, listeners to this podcast, $500 off when you order a fully kitted out 8 by 10 foot board. That's their smallest board. And you can save even more than that if you upgrade to a larger board. Again, that's grasshopperclimbing.com to learn more and connect with their sales team. And be sure to tell them I sent you to save $500 or more on your very own grasshopper. This episode is also brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions, my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin. Here's the deal. It's fall. Temps are getting good. It's time to send. I just got back to beautiful Utah. It's sunny and cold here, and I'm going to be doing a lot of sport climbing on sharp limestone while I'm here. The rock here is amazing. I love it, but it really chews through my skin, especially on the warmer days. But luckily for all of us, my pal Justin Brown, the founder of Rhino Skin Solutions, has the solution. Rhino's Repair Cream is my staple. That's something I use every night after climbing to help my skin repair more quickly for my next day of climbing. And Rhino also has a line of antiperspirant products that are a game changer when it comes to climbing in warm or humid conditions, especially if you have sweaty skin like I do. So if you are gearing up for fall and it's still a little bit warm where you are or a little bit humid, check out the Performance Cream, the Dry Spray, and the tip juice to keep your hands dry as you tackle your fall projects. And if you want all of the pro tips about how to use these products to dial in your skin for the type of rock you want to climb on or for a trip that you're going on, you can check out my episode with Justin Brown way back in episode 22 of The Nugget to learn how to use them. There's a ton of great tips and that's just a really fun episode anyway, so be sure to check that one out. If you're ready to buy, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order of Rhino Skin Solution products. Once again, that's rhinoskinsolutions.com. Use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order of the best skincare products in the game. 
And finally, this episode is brought to you by Arcteryx. When Jordan Cannon, a young climber infatuated with climbing history, meets climbing legend Mark Hudon, a Yosemite big wall free climbing pioneer, they form an unlikely partnership around a common goal. Jordan wants to free climb the free rider on El Capitan in a day, and Mark hopes to free the route in as many days as it takes and accomplish his lifelong goal of free climbing El Capitan. Follow their story in Free As Can Be, a short climbing film brought to you by Arcteryx. I watched the film over the summer. It's 31 minutes long. It's so well done. It's a story of climbing partnership and adventure. And if you love this podcast, and especially if you love my episodes about Yosemite and El Cap, then I know you'll love the film. So check it out. Head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx Free As Can Be, or you can use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Once again, you can head over to YouTube and search for Arcteryx Free As Can Be, or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. Arcteryx presents Free As Can Be, and we hope you enjoy the film. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. And my guest today is Robbie Phillips. Robbie is a professional climber and filmmaker from Scotland. He is best known for being a trad climber and adventure climber. Robbie has done a lot of exploration and first ascents around Scotland, where he lives, and around the islands of Scotland. We talked about that in this episode. But this guy's really an all-arounder. He's really good at everything from sport climbing. He's climbed 14C, 8C plus for you guys listening in other parts of the world. He's also pretty damn good at bouldering, even though he says he's not. He's very good at trad climbing. He's climbed 14B on gear many times, including first ascents up to E10, or 514B with a little bit of a spice factor. You'll hear us break down the E grades in this episode as well. And he climbs big walls and big alpine rock routes as well. This guy's love for climbing has taken him to every corner of the globe. And he's just really fun to talk to. I really enjoyed my conversation with Robbie. He's got a really fun temperament, as you'll hear In this episode, Robbie's also a filmmaker. He makes some really great climbing films featuring trips he's been on. He also shares a lot of really helpful tips through his YouTube channel. So if you enjoy this conversation, I encourage you to check out the show notes for this episode at thenuggetclimbing.com and find your way to his YouTube channel and be sure to subscribe to Robbie and check out some of the films that we talked about in this episode. I link to all of my favorites in the show notes for this episode as well. And yeah, again, I had a great time talking to Robbie. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation, and I'm excited to share it. Please enjoy this wide-ranging and very fun conversation with Robbie Phillips. Oh my god. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. This uh fun <laughs> ethic to get here. <laughs> How you doing, Robbie? Yeah, good. Firstly, is the sound okay? Because I've got headphones um I could wear if that's better for you. This actually does uh, sound pretty good. Yeah. You on your laptop? Yeah, this is my laptop. I was got the window open because I'm boiling hot because I just ran halfway across the city <laughs> to get here in time. Because the bloody car that we were in broke down. 
<laughs> and I left, left the guy I was with <laughs> in the middle of the city center of Edinburgh to deal with my shit whilst I come here. I did tell him, I was like, I'm going to have to go um, for four o'clock and it's eight minutes past four at the moment. So I've pretty much managed it. <laughs> <laughs> was it his car or your car? No, it was quite funny, actually. Um, so basically today I was, I mean, this week has been just total chaotic uh, on a number of levels. But um, today I was doing a photo shoot for an advertisement for Suzuki. Oh, okay. <laughs> really this is not my normal life. Of all things. Yeah. Bizarre. But um, yeah, uh, it was like a really random thing that just popped up and they wanted a climber. Uh, climbing on a wall next to a car and i thought why not so we got this given this car and uh yeah we drove it around some walls and i went climbing on them and the security guards for this like basic building came out and they were i was there in my climbing shoes with chalked hands chalk bag on my back and um, bouldering mat in this car parked illegally like on this like section of wall and they just walked right up to us and said are you guys climbing? And we just went, no. And they, went, <laughs> they were like, oh, it must be something else down this way. So just walked right past us. We guess that's our time to pack up and go. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, then we went for lunch. Uh, and then the car broke when I was meant to be coming here. So I just said, you deal with that crap and I'm going. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I got in and I was like, you know what I really need right now is a cup of tea. And I got in and I boiled the kettle and I realized I ran out of milk. Oh, so, no. That's a real shitter, actually, if you're British, because I, I do love black tea with milk. So I, I'm settling with a mint tea right now. It'll just have to do. <laughs> well, thank you for running halfway across the city to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. Happy to be here. Quite excited. <laughs> Any questions for me before we dive in? I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm recording on my end. Everything looks good. Sounds good. Uh, no questions at all. I mean, I know that you uh, did send like a list of sort of questions ages ago, and I will admit I looked at it for about thirty seconds and was planning on like looking at it a bit cl closer, and I just haven't had any time. Great. So this is this is this is kind of on site. You know what I mean? This <laughs> yeah. This is like an on site podcast, which is probably the best way to do them, isn't it? I love it. I mean, you're good at it. You're good at on siteing. You're easy to talk to, so I think it'll work out just fine. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted <laughs> um you want to tell me about your recent trip to St. Kilda? I am really curious about that. I have no idea about this trip. We haven't talked about it at all. I don't even know where St. Kilda is, but I think there's a story here. So, um let's let's kick things off with that. What is St. Kilda? Where is that? St. Kilda is an archipelago, a group of islands on the west coast of Scotland, 60 miles off the west coast of the western isles of scotland so not even 60 miles off the mainland 60 miles off the other islands that are off scotland and it is the most remote part of the british isles um it is totally wild place and um, that it's just like something out of like a prehistoric world it's a really interesting uh, place because it's actually one of very few places in the world which are both UNESCO uh, heritage sites for cultural, but also natural reasons. So there's basically evidence, well, there's, 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 there's 2,000 year old, there's a 2,000 year old sort of settlement on, um, on St. Kilda. So there's 
proof of human inhabitation for as long as 2,000 years. But there's actually, they also reckon that people have been going there for potentially the last 4,000 years. So it's like, God, it's an, you know, really, really like a lot of cool architectural, import, uh, not architectural, um, archaeological importance mm. there. But on top of that, it's also um, like a bird sanctuary. It has, I think, the largest full, a bird called Fulmar, largest Fulmar colony, one of the largest Gannet colonies, um, breeds on this little, one of the little islands of uh, St. Kilda called Borare. And they have a Schedule 1 protected species of bird called, uh, I think, something petrol. I can't remember what it's called, but it lives on this little island called Dune. There's all these like really, you know, unique, you know, natural things going on in the island. There's these like really bizarre sheep that are like specific to one of the little islands. When I say like islands, I'm talking about tiny little islands that you can walk across in like 40 minutes or something, oh, wow. you know, like tiny little places. Um, but the cool thing about St. Kilda from a climbing perspective is that this is it's a volcanic it's a volcanic group of islands. It was essentially a volcano, you know, however many million years ago, whatever. But um, it's just, they're just rock faces, just like bursting out the sea. Mm. Um, you know, there's like two small bays on the main island of Herta that you can, and only one of them you can actually bring like a boat in. Uh, apart from that, you know, you can't really moor it anywhere else. It's just sheer rock face. So, I mean, I've wanted to go there for a very long time and I tried to go last year and didn't quite make it work. And this year I managed to pull a team together to go to St. Kilda. But not only that, I managed to entice a sea captain to take us out there on his sailing boat so that we could have complete, you know, autonomy over where we went, mm. which was pretty remarkable. Like the number of people that go to St. Kilda every year is like very, very, very tiny. And um, like only like a few people probably, well, in terms of climbing, only a few people probably go every year to go climbing. The number of people that go there with a boat, you know, you're probably taught to go climbing. You're probably talking like in the last 30 years, maybe only three, you know what I mean? Like, wow. I know, yeah, I mean like Dave <laughs> McLeod, I know went out there with a boat once. Uh, I know another team that went out there with a boat to climb once. I know another team that went back in like the sixties and then I know us. So that's like four teams, and I'm not sure if many other people have actually done that. Um, it's a yeah, a bit of a journey. Um, so that's probably like a good, that's a good, uh, you know, grounding in what St Kilda is. Yeah. How did you learn about this place? Was it from Dave? No, no. I mean, it's just it's just a famous, famous okay. place. It's well known. I mean, it's it's well known as like a, it, you know, no sort of world worldly way. Like you know, people know about St Kilda, but it's. I guess like climbing on St Kilda, although that's known about, it's not as not as many people go there because it's just so it's just a harder place to go to. I mean, I guess you have to pass quite a lot of amazing places to get there. Mm. Like the West Isles of Scotland, you've got like you know Pabbey, Mingley, Burnery, Harris, Lewis, and all those islands have a remarkable amount of rock climbing and tons of narrating potential, and um, you know lifetimes and lifetimes of climbing. And it's all it's all world class. So to get to St Kilda, you've got to go another sixty miles, and like you know, there's some restrictions in place. You know, you it's it, because it's such a a birdy place. You know, there's so many birds there. Um, it it puts people off um, going in the summer months because that's bird season. So obviously, in the in the 
outside of bird nesting season, the weather's more temperamental. So we went just outside of bird nesting season. We were there early September. And, uh, and yeah, it was great, but um, not really, we didn't really see many birds on the cliffs, but we didn't see any birds on the cliffs. But, um, but then, of course, you've just got a bit more temperamental weather. We were very lucky. We had like, pretty much, like, I'd say 80% of the time we were there, we had great weather and only a few days of, of rain, which was pretty remarkable for that time of year, really. Nice. That's awesome. And um, this is funny timing because... Maybe it's not funny timing. I don't know. But I just watched some of your videos this morning in prep for this. And I finally watched your first Long Hope video. It sounds really oh, yeah. similar. Um, and it's, it's funny based on your experience on that thing. I'm like, huh, you, you wanted to go back for even more of that sort of thing, huh? But is it is it similar? Like is Kilda mostly sandstone sea cliff or all those aisles around there with all this world-class climbing? Is it mostly sandstone sea cliff? Absolutely not. No. Oh, okay. Um, huh. I think Kilda's volcanic. So you've got Gabro. Um, and I think you have, uh, you know what? I actually read, well, there was one of the other, um, it's like, I, oh God, I'm terrible at remembering the names of these things. It's like a Eucrite, I think it's called. Um, I don't really know what that is, but it's kind of a bit granity. I will, I will admit there was this one Island that we went on called Dune, um, which I think had the best rock. Um, I think I've, I shouldn't say this on a podcast cause then loads of people want to go, but, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just like nervous. It's okay. We're all afraid of the weather up in Scotland. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, mean, I honestly, it climbed like granite. It climbed like bomber, Yosemite, glacial polished uh, granite. Wow. And I, at first I thought it was granite, but then I was like, I don't really think there is granite on St. Kilda. And when I looked at it online uh, on this sort of geological map survey, it, it was something called like a, a Eucrite. Um, so I, I, I don't know what that is. Maybe one of your your listeners will be able to like fill me in a little bit. Yeah. Let us know if you're listening to this and you're a geologist or something and you know what the hell that is, then ping us yeah, and let us know. On the Isle of Dune. And it was, it was absolutely incredible. Um, but the, the main rock I think on St. Kilda, which is quite famous for is the Gabro. Um, you get Gabro, you know, on the mainland of Scotland as well. And um, one of the walls we did uh, on the Isle of Soe. It was just, a, it was perfect, uh, like super clean gabbro. There was no cleaning necessary. You literally just abbed in, went to your, you know, or climbed up to your spot, built a belay, and then just smashed up the wall, like no cleaning necessary. Wow. Which in Scotland is fabulous because, you know, often in the mountain crags, there's a lot of cleaning necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Are you following cracks or is this kind of like what I would think of mountain crags, like you're placing gear, but in little features and things like that. Is it kind of like, you know, gear protected face climbing? What's the style? Yeah. So the stuff that I just talked about, the Gabbro stuff, I mean, that's quite classic Scottish traditional climbing style. So it's, um, it might, there was a big massive crack feature on that, but that's quite unusual. And that was the, the money pitch. Cause it was just like super bomber cams all the way up it and like, you know, really good hand jams and little finger locks. And the angle wasn't too much, so it was just like really steady. Before that, though, it was like a real classic technical face climbing, uh, rock climb, basically. It was just like uh, um, small crimps and little pockets and fiddling and little wires into little niches. And I mean, to be so honest, the the gear was all bomber, like absolutely sinker wires. Um, But it was quite technical, uh, quite difficult to read. Um, quite blind, quite sometimes quite scary because you just weren't sure 
what was coming next. Mm. You weren't sure if you were going to climb up into like a blind spot. So you were constantly, it was, it was quite like a time consuming pitch for me. Um, I, I just took my time on that and made sure I was safe uh, the entire way. But then, yeah, once you got to the crack, that was the money pitch. It was like a, a sort of 40 meter splitter just tearing its way straight up the central uh, part of the wall. And it was just glorious. Wow. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was the, that was probably, that was probably one of the best routes I've ever done, actually. Was that an established route or was that like, I mean, it sounds almost like it was just ground up on site, first ascent. That's exactly what it was. And I mean, that's, that's what we went there to do. Okay. Um, it's, yeah, it's funny. Like, these sorts of trips, I don't really go out there to go and repeat things. You kind of, because mm. it's such an adventurous place, you want to go out there and do new routes. And especially with St. Kilda, I think there's so much potential to do out there. It'd be a bit of a shame just going out and repeating stuff. Um, so yeah, and because we had the boat as well, like on the first day we got there and we just toured around the island and the boat only took two hours to like circle the entire <laughs> sort of like archipelago mm. uh, on the cliff faces and we just kind of like took pictures of the stuff we wanted we felt like good and decided like let's do that first day let's do that second day let's do that third day um and we only scratched the surface um there's <laughs> still a lot left i'm gonna go back next year i'm pretty much settled on that um but interesting enough like the gabbro so the gabbro was like that then the stuff we did on Dune, which I said was that kind of granity stuff, the Ukrite stuff. I mean, that honestly, the that reminded me of climbing Yosemite Valley. That's what it reminded me of. And um, I went, we we arrived. I'll tell you a funny story of this one actually. So basically, um, you know, we were living on this boat, and uh, obviously, when you're accessing the bottom of cliffs via a boat, um, you've got to be very aware of the the um, swell. If the swell is big, it makes it very difficult and very dangerous to get onto the rocks and probably not advisable. So you're generally wanting a calm sea. Um, we had this sea captain who was um, a guy called Charles Smallwood, who was an absolute legend. And he, you know, I, I really wanted to go climbing on this dune place. And he was like looking at, looking at us and saying, like, what are you guys thinking? And it was super choppy. Um, but we weren't close enough to see how big the swell was. And I was like, I'd like to go and just see if we can get on. And the other guys were like, well, Robbie, why don't you go first? Go with Charles, see if we see if you can get on. And if you can, then we'll follow. So I jump in the, in the wee dinghy with Charles. They're all watching me with binoculars from the boat. We get up to the we get up to the rock face and the swell is like massive. It's like five meter swells. Oh, they're crashing back down. <laughs> I've got my climbing gear there. And Charles is like, what do you want to do? And I was like, would you think I should try for it? And he was like, yeah, you can try. And I was like, all right. So then I tried once and didn't manage to get on. Meanwhile, I had no idea this was happening. Meanwhile, back on the boat, the other guys are watching with binoculars going, don't fucking get on that rock face. Don't get on that. Come back. Because they know that if I get on that thing, they've got to come out as well. <laughs> I tried that second time around. I managed to get on the rock. I'm standing on this rock and the waves crashing around. Charles heads back to the boat. And then apparently they just went, but Guy, Guy Robertson, who was one of the team, he was like, well, I'm not going. And then Hamish, the photographer, went, yeah, I'm not going either. <laughs> and so Will Burkett, who was like the last of the team, he was just stuck in a situation where he was like, well, I guess I have to go because <laughs> we can't leave Robbie on his own. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, Will comes out, has a similar epic to me getting on the, the rock. But once he's on, Charles leaves us and Will explains to me the rest aren't coming. So I'm like, right, well, we've got to make this count. So... This is one, uh, this is Wall and Dune, which I just thought was remarkable. 
and uh, we went for the easiest line up it, and it just goes straight up this big massive corner system. And from the boat, you know, you can obviously get an idea of like what it looks like, but you, you never really know until you get right in there. And it was so much bigger and grander than I ever could have imagined. And it was so much better than I ever could have imagined. It was, again, totally clean, like splitter cracks all the way up this big corner, bomber gear the whole way. And despite being the easiest line up the wall, it still ended up climbing at, um, coming in at around E5. So, you know, E5 and sort of like uh, American grades would probably be something like 12A, 12B, but like R. Oh, no, again, not necessarily R, actually. It was a good bomber protected. Yeah, just 12, 12B probably. It's 12B, actually. Okay. Um, yeah, 12B, um, yeah, bomber gear. How many um, pitches? How big is this thing? It was three pitches, probably over 100 meters. Um, so there was a shorter pitch at the start end of it, it probably was about 30 odd meters and then two pitches of 40 or 50 meters after that and uh and yeah and then when we finished we absolutely done got the rope stuck classic <laughs> epic got back down to the platform and then we were like well we've got to wait until the boat comes back and the the swell was even greater this time <laughs> it was huge and we couldn't actually there's no there was no way we'd be able to get back on the boat from where we got dropped off so um, I can, I basically had a, a system where we I abbed down basically this cliff with like there's no ledges. You just had to like ab down this cliff and then basically just like jump into the dinghy <laughs> as a slide. Uh, and so that's how we got off. And uh, yeah, I, I actually thought Charles, our sea captain, was going to be really angry because he had to like do this like really sketchy like crossing to get us. But actually, he was wired. He was just like so psyched. He was like just happy that we had a good day. Again, this this bit of context. This guy is a seventy year old, you know, basically sailor who is not a climber at all. Uh, I happened to meet a friend of his uh, whilst climbing in a very very remote part of Scotland by chance. Got chatting to this guy, and he said, "If you are ever going on a trip, uh, I know a guy who might be able to like take you." And that's how I got introduced to Charles. So it's one of those chance uh, encounters or chance meetings uh, that just end up being absolutely amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I I love it. I've I want to ask about the long hope too, but um, but before that, I'm just really curious how you got into this sort of adventure stuff. Like you started as a comp climber, if I'm not mistaken. Tell me a little bit about that journey because you've you've just latched on to like a very specific kind of niche in climbing. And it seems like you're really thriving in it, excelling in it, loving it, just having so much fun and climbing some really hard stuff. But yeah, tell me a little bit, bit about the journey from early climbing and comp climbing to adventure climbing and going on. I don't know if, would you call this an expedition? Like what would you call this sort of trip? Yeah. yeah is this problem? I mean, that St. Kilda trip would be like a mini expedition, I guess. Um, I guess, well, first and foremost, like, yeah, I guess like the adventure stuff, I, I, I love adventure and I love challenge. That's like really key to, to who I am as a climber these days. But I, I, I don't think of myself necessarily as like one type of climber. I actually love all types of climbing. Um, at the moment, I'm training a lot and I'm in the gym and I flip and love it. Mm. I love just like, getting on the board and pulling hard. I've made a couple of replicas of like projects I've got for this winter, you know, and I'm excited about pulling hard on pockets. And, um, 
you know, but also I, I love sport climbing, I love bouldering, I love trad climbing, I love big wall climbing. And, you know, I, it just kind of depends on kind of where I'm, my focuses are at the time. But yeah, early on in the days, I mean, I started, I live in the city of Edinburgh, it's the capital city of Scotland. We have one of the world's largest climbing centers uh, in Edinburgh, a place called EICA Ratho. Um, they host, they host like international competitions every year. And so as a young climber growing up in Edinburgh, that was where I climbed. And I, I guess, got really like drawn into that sort of competition thing. And my personality is one that likes a challenge and I'm quite competitive. And definitely early on, I would have been quite competitive with other people. These days, I'm more competitive with myself and striving to be a better climber for different reasons. But like as a, as a young climber, I think I really enjoyed competitions. Um, and so it, it just made, yeah, I guess it makes sense, you know, it, it, especially living in Edinburgh because the nearest good climbing to Edinburgh is about an hour and a half away. Um, you've got an hour and a half south, you've got Northumberland. I guess you've got like an hour and 10 further west, you've got Dumbarton Rock and about same same distance um, further north, you've got like Dunkeld. And if you, you can go up the highlands and stuff, but you know, that's not a day trip. That's not like after work or after school. So as a young climber living in Edinburgh, indoor climbing is what you do. Um, and I think, you know, I've always been someone who loves having a goal and competitions are a pretty good goal to have when you're an indoor climber. Uh, and I made a lot of good friends uh, in those days as well. But interestingly enough, I, I started climbing when I was 15 years old. So I was a, a wee bit late from like a, a youth perspective. And when I was 16, my mum and dad said, well, we're not, we never holiday this year. So do you want to find somewhere that has a nice beach that also has rock climbing? And you can go and do rock climbing and we'll go hang out on the beach. And I read a Neil Gresham article at the time about Kalimnos. And that sounded just perfect. So my dad, mum and dad took me to Kalimnos when I was 16. I hadn't done much rock climbing outside before. Um, the first day, mum took me to the crag. She didn't belay me. and They're not climbers. Um, I taught her how to belay at the base of the crag. <laughs> and we quickly found out that that was not going to be a good thing to do for the rest of the trip. So I ended up you know, joining like this little beginner course that was being run by Aris Theodoropoulos, who's uh, the guy who wrote the guidebook. And he sort of like, that was kind of like, I guess that, that trip to Kalimnos was like my first sort of um sort of experience of like outdoor climbing beyond the central belt of Scotland, which is the area around Edinburgh and Glasgow. And I guess like without being, you know, from the central belt or without being from Scotland, you wouldn't quite understand what that means. But to put it bluntly, the central belt of Scotland is largely dolerite quarries and they're mostly shite. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're, they're hardly inspiring especially from somebody who's coming from an indoor inv climbing environment and is used to jumping around and like heat mm. walls to then go to a dank quarry and you know the, and also they're all trads so it's quite like slow and quite, bo quite boring when you're young I, I think you know um, so Kalimnos was like that flipped upside down sport climbing on steep tufas and stalactites and jumping around all the place. I was like, this is what I'm talking about. This is rock climbing. <laughs> For years, people would be like, oh, rock climbing is way better than indoor climbing. And all I had to compare, well, 
at that minute, at early time, all I had to compare with dolerite crags, dolerite quarries. So, so that, re, you know, after a year and a half of climbing or whatever, I was, I saw what climbing could be. And then I just got really inspired by sport climbing. And then for, for like probably until I was 24, I'd say, I basically was just a sport climber. I traveled all over the world, um, sport climbing a lot in France and Spain. And I went over to uh, Australia on a sport climbing trip when I was 24 and um, had an amazing time over there. And I was mainly focused on just like climbing a lot. I, I wasn't massively into projecting. I just, I just liked climbing stuff that I could do in a day or two. And, uh, and, I, and I climbed up to a fairly high level, like 8C plus doing, doing that. Um, 14C for people listening. Yeah, 14, yeah, but 14C, yeah. And then when I was, um, yeah, when I was 24, I, I started, I don't know, like you, you go back to a lot of these sport crags, um, especially in Spain and France. And, uh, you know, it sounds like such a first world climber problem, but I just got bored of like seeing the same people at these crags doing the same things, projecting the same routes year in, year out, and having the same conversations about like, grades and you know being you know soft and um egos as well it kind of got me a bit down and i i started to i had this like little bit of a a period where i was i think like a six month period where i was like oh, i'm not sure if i'm as in love with this as i as i always used to be before mm. that was kind of scary because i built a career in climbing coaching and route setting and I built a bit of a name of myself as well as being a sport climber. And I was like, oh man, what happens if I don't love this anymore? It's the sort of thing people always say, you know, if you if you live your your passion eventually, like maybe it won't be your passion anymore if that's your career, you mm. know. Um and so I had this trip to Australia, which was really interesting. And it was a bit a bit out there. And I did some really cool stuff, made some really good friends. And off the back of that trip, real, real quickly, what do you? It was a bit out there. What do you mean? By, what do you mean by that? Oh, just it was like just a different, like on the other side of the planet. Um, the climbing was just like really amazing. It was, it was like a, it was just something very different. I think to what I had experienced, and I'd always wanted to go to Australia, and I always had lots of friends from Australia. It just felt like a bit more. Again, for for my the younger self, it felt like a bit of like an ex tradition you know like mm. going all the way over there and, and and traveling around australia and kind of exploring it was more of an adventure than a, than like a than just like a sport climbing trip i previously i would be like right i'm going to spain and i'm going to go and do these 10 80 pluses mm. and uh, i'm going to you know nail them one after another and you know that that was my goal with australia i was like well i've got nothing i got no idea i'm just going to go over there and i guess i'm just going to go climbing and i'm just yeah, it's just going to see what happens um, and so I did a lot of cool stuff, put my first ascent of like a, an eight, eight C 14 B thing, which is really cool. Um, and did a bunch of other quite hard sport, sport climbs. But I think that that kind of like trip kind of was like a bit more of an adventure, as I say. And I kind of was like, oh, quite cool to explore something a bit more adventurous. And so my Australian friend, Logan suggested that we go and do something in the Dolomites. And there was this route that I'd heard about in the Dolomites called Bella Vista, which is a famous Alex Huber um, sort of 8B, 8B plus alpine rock climb 
protected largely on pitons, pegs, you know, hammered into the, the rock. And uh, so basically we went and did that. And that was, that was that, I think that was that year, actually, same year at Australia. And doing that climb, it was the first multi-pitch I'd ever done. It scared me silly at the time. Like I was so terrified and I had to ha- have some like really serious conversation with myself when I was up there about like, <clears throat> I don't know, just like being able to climb above this gear and when you're so scared, like wh- and I remember at the, the, the crux pitch and um, thinking back, actually, it sounds kind of silly, but I remember having this conversation with myself, the crux pitch. I was like, how much do you want this, Robbie? Are you willing to risk your life for this? And I was like, yes, yes, I am. You know, I was like, okay, come on, Robbie, you got this. And like, I remember like busting out, like, because I was shitting myself. I was like, busting out through the overhang, clipping these pegs, managing to force myself through the, the, the climbing. And I got to this, inc- this big pocket about three quarters of the way on the, the wall. There's a massive pocket and a big, massive jugs in it. And you know that when you get to this, you only have another sort of 10, 15 meters of like, oh, still tricky, but not as hard as what you've done before. And I got this big, massive pocket and I turned upside down and I shoved both my feet in there and bat hanged upside down, facing away from the rock face. Whoa. And what I saw, I mean, you're 300 meters up at this point. And what I saw was a sea of blue with jagged rocks coming down out the sky because it was everything was upside down so it was the mountains facing down i was like i was it was like i was in like some sort of like underworld where like everything was upside (laughs) down and it was the most i just sat there like in this bat hang position just i was in a reverse bat hang position i think my heels were jammed as well and i was like just sitting there looking at this like in this remarkable situation going this is the most incredible moment of my life. Mm. And then after I'd shaken out and recovered, I pulled back on and I went to the belay and I just screamed. I was so happy. And Logan was like screaming for the belay. I could barely hear him, but he was like so happy as well. And then he just followed along. We climbed another three pitches, started pissing with rain. We got benighted. It was cold <laughs> as night of my life. Um, and then the next game morning, we climbed out of there and back at the the sort of we refugio where we got some food and a cup of tea. We were just sitting there kind of like shell-shocked at the table. And I was like, man, I want to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was, that was, that was basically, yeah, that was the thing that sparked it all. Like mm. it made me realize that, you know, there's more to climbing earth and sport climbing, but I can still have, you know, a challenging experience in the mountains and, and this sort of like overcoming this mental barriers is is really fun too and and so yeah that's that's kind of like where i just kind of started delving more into the adventure side of climbing mm. how old are you now robbie mm. 32 32 so that was when i was 24 um and it's funny like i can't break it out of my head but i still sometimes i, I still think of myself as an indoor climber Oh, funny! <laughs> you know, I'm mean, yeah. like an indoor sport climber. I yeah. still think of myself. I'm still like I'm. I'm still an indoor sport climber, just learning how to be a trad climber. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's that's funny. funny. Is there still some imposter syndrome there with that? Like, do you? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I, I, I don't think. Um. Yeah, you know, so some people. I maybe this is maybe this is wrong 
wrong to think. Maybe they're in the same position as me, but I look at some climbers and I think they they seem to do this trad climbing and the scary stuff quite naturally, or they're they're they seem to somehow be able to block out fear in a way that that I can. I don't know, but none of what I do and. I don't think I don't think there's a lot of what I do in the sort of adventure side of climbing that's very natural. Um, for one, I'm shit with ropes. I'm always getting knots and messes and <laughs> causing chaos in the rope work. Um, I, I take a long time to figure out gear positions, despite having done it now for so long. Um, unless it's a crack and it's obvious. Um, um, and I, I get scared. Um, I'm not very good at bold climbing, so the way I get around it is I usually spend a lot of time fiddling in more gear until I feel confident enough to to continue. Um, that or head pointing, you know, like where you sort of practice a route on top rope. But on on site climbing and trad on sort of scarier stuff, that's definitely like something I need to work a bit more on. It's mm. Definitely not my strongest suit. Um, but the one thing I'd say I am actually very natural at, uh, something that I think I've always been very good at, is I can suffer quite a lot. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, even early days of sport climbing and training and indoor climbing, I, I could I could do a lot of volume. I've always been very good at doing a lot of training. Mm. Uh, big days. I'm a big guy. I'm eighty odd kilos. You know, like I can carry a lot of weight. Um, so carrying a trad rack up a five hundred or four hundred meter sea cliff, you know, and dealing with all the shit that you know, British you know, mountain trad kind of throws at you on a daily basis, I can, I can take it. Um, yeah, I noticed that I found out when I went to Yosemite, actually, mm. big wall climbing was actually pretty easy for me. It was a pretty easy transition to make. I actually went climbing with a, a good friend of mine, uh, a couple of good friends of mine, Alan. <laughs> Seems like all the climbers I've gone big wall climbing with have been very small people. <laughs> like Logan's like five foot one. Alan's like five foot one. They weigh nothing. Um, and how, I found how tall that, are you? Oh, I'm like six foot, and I weigh eighty three kilos at the moment. Okay, uh, and uh, you know, like I, I found with those guys, it just takes so fucking long to haul a bag. Up. Um, <laughs> so I would, I, in the end, I was like, guys, just leave it. Let me do it. So for basically all the big wall climbs, I think I've done on Alcap, I've pretty much hauled them myself um, from the very start, <laughs> just because it just it's much quicker. <laughs> that's so yeah. yeah this this is all really interesting because i mean despite everything that you're saying about um scary climbing bold climbing not coming naturally to you you have a very impressive resume in those arenas and and somewhat of a identity in climbing as a bold trad climber i mean with all the maybe that's just the e-grades and the american interpretation of the e-grades you know like i see e10 and I just assume you're risking your life, even though I know yeah. I know that re- E10 can be very difficult and very safe. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. Does that propensity towards big wall climbing, feeling like you're good at that, does that make you want to do more of it? Or are you drawn to the, are you more drawn to the thing that you feel less natural at? Like, I want to get better at this thing because I'm not as good at it. Bit of, bit of both, really. Bit of both, I mean, yeah. I'd, say, I'd say like, and I'm being totally honest with you, I get drawn to whatever I feel like doing at the time. Mm. I'm I'm not I'm not great I'm not great at doing something I don't want to do. Like if I if I'm not interested in something, I just don't do it. Uh, I've always been like that. That's why I was shit at school. Um, because if I just didn't want to do it, I wouldn't do it. 
but uh you know if i if i get psyched on big wall climbing then i'm i'm, I'm all in um as it happens right now i've got this project that i really want to do in northumberland and it's on pockets and i'm really bad at pockets and the reason i want to do it is because it's uh it's it is it is what i'm bad at you know um it's kind of like a little bit of like proving to myself i can do it um i guess it's the same one of the things from bouldering i've never been a great boulderer um you know comparatively and so i do a lot of bouldering because i know that it makes a difference to my trad climbing and my sport climbing uh, i've never had an issue with endurance really i notice when my fingers get stronger it's a huge um difference to me uh, on the wall um I just seem to climb a lot better. And I, I don't think that that's something that everybody should necessarily uh, take for themselves. I'd say like Dave McLeod, me and Dave have spoken a bit about this actually. Um, you know, I think he puts himself in a similar boat to me and says he's got weak fingers, although I would say he's got stronger fingers than me. Um, he can use his technique in a very effective way to get more weight off his fingers. And I'd say I'm very similar to that. So any gains I do make in strength are transferred directly onto the onto the wall, mm-hmm. and that that's that's uh, that's why I think I can I do a lot of bouldering as well. That's a good lead-in. I have a couple patron questions for you. <clears throat> this one's from Christoph. Christoph wanted to know how does Robbie train for hard trad climbing specifically? Does he use sport climbing, general training, anything else? And it sounds like it is just, you know, like the way that you would train for any other hard type of climbing, just bouldering and just normal training and then just going and doing a lot of it. But, um, but yeah, anything yeah, else? Absolutely. I mean, well, I would say that, you know, specificity is, is the key. So, you know, I, I do, trad climbing is, un, unfortunately, trad climbing is like, very, just like every other type of climbing, it's very varied. You know, you get short bouldery trad climbs, you get long and pumpy trad climbs. You know, if you're head pointing something, if you're headpointing something like practicing on top rope, it's basically sport climbing. Um, I often say headpointing is basically sport climbing with fear. <laughs> you know, that's, 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 that's all it is. Mm. Um, traditional climbing is traditionally on-site. And so comparing headpoint trad with on-site trad is very different. I actually think like the best on-site trad climber in the UK right now is a guy from Scotland called Ian Small. And his hardest sport climb to date is 8B. Um, but only recently has he climbed 8B. And he's not that strong, but he's incredibly fit. His endurance is just absolutely incredible. He can hang on two crimps and fiddle in a small wire for like an hour, you know, and build a little nest of gear before questing up on a 7C plus techie granite face. And and so like if if you're training for on-site trad and that's what you want to do then i would say historically i've been maybe doing a lot more uh, endurance training um higher end endurance training especially like more in the aerobic sort of side of things um funny enough actually that wall i was climbing on for the shoot today i was traversing around in it thinking this would actually be really good training for trad <laughs> it was like <laughs> little rocky edges and mm-hmm. i was getting quite pumped going um but uh, if i'm you know training for this project i've got at the moment which is in northumberland and that's essentially a font 80 plus boulder problem on pockets you place the gear and it's like six it's like 511 or whatever to get there and then you just pull really hard for like eight 
nine moves or whatever it is, you know, mm. and then it's over. So it really depends on on what you're saying and what your what your focus is. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for Christoph, I actually, and for you, Robbie, I watched your what we do in the shadows video this morning as well. That's something I want to get to in a little bit here, but. I mean, for that one, like that's an E10 trad climb, but it just looks like a quote, normal route, you know, like there's not really much of a crack and you're just fiddling, fiddling in gear where you can. And then it ends with like a steep V9 boulder problem with a dyno at the end, you know? Um, And you had a really great, you made an amazing video about that. And you kind of bounce back and forth between sections of the route with you climbing on the route and then you training on your home wall. And you can tell that you've like mimicked you've created a really accurate replica of that boulder problem. And I mean, that's the exact same way that any of us would train for anything, for a boulder problem or for a sport route, you know, just just dialing in the specific hard parts and, and training those on the home wall. So yeah, that was really interesting. I'm sure it's a little different. Like you, I'm sure you, it takes longer at the stances to place the gear and you probably have to build a little bit more specific endurance and then just be brave <laughs> when you when you go for it. But yeah. Yeah, and I think like with trad climb, there's there's more elements uh, to consider than when you're sport climbing as well. You you can't you know factor out the you can't you can't like miss the fact that there's like uh, a mental element. And um, with what we do in the shadows in particular, there was a long period of time when I thought that fall at the end wasn't going to be safe, and so I had to really think about that as like well, you know when I'm climbing, you know, how does this feel? And when am I going to know if I'm ready to go for it or not? Me and Dave are both trying it at the same time. And we were having that conversation. Um, it just so happened, like a few sessions before we uh, we did it, Dave found a little bit of gear on the right, which totally made the, the fall safe. And so at that point, it really didn't feel like trad climbing anymore. It just felt like I was out trying this red point uh, 14B sport climb. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I actually don't think the E10 grade really works for that climb i mean it sounds cooler than hc i guess that's one thing and because it's a trad climb in the uk you can't escape you can't really call it hc because it's not got bolts but to all intents and purposes it's just an hc sport climb without the bolts (laughs) (laughs) you're a bomber (laughs) it's like i mean the gears the gears a little bit like uh you got to know how to place it but once it's placed you're 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 solid you're golden yeah, let me uh, let me fill in a little bit there, and you can tell me if I'm getting this right. But for people that are listening, especially people in the you know in the states <clears throat> like me who aren't familiar with the E grades, the UK grading system is based on the E scale, and it kind of captures the entire experience of the route. So it's not just the difficulty; it's also the danger factor and the mental factor and things like that. And so you have the the E grade, and then you have like a technical rating for the route as well. And this one's, you know, 14B, but relatively safe, gets the E10. If it were 14B and really dangerous, it would get, you know, E11 or who knows. Um, yeah, am I getting all that right? Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much it. Okay. I actually think, I mean, I actually think the UK trad grading system doesn't really work um, in this day and age because ultimately the, the British trad grading system started and went on, when on-site trad climbing was what you did so to give an on-site climber somebody who has no idea what's coming up um a bit of an idea of what to expect and um yeah i mean i i've i'm not 
I've not looked heavily into in, into this, but I think at the point head pointing came along where people started practicing these claims before they ended up going on them. I think at that point, the, the, the British trad grading system just kind of didn't really start working so well anymore. Um, that, came, that seems to be quite a common consensus on where it is. And quite a lot of the time, I actually think that if we adopted a system like the US has, like just say, you know, 511R, just run out 511, or 511X, the death 511, <laughs> or just 511. Ah, it's a little protected 511. <laughs> you know, if that, if that was the system, it probably would just make, just make a lot more sense. The other, thing with, the other thing with the UK I find is, depending on which area you're at, you could be on the gritstone, you could be on like a slate in North Wales, you could be on a Scottish mountain or on a sea cliff. You know, depending on where you're at, the grades can can kind of mean kind of subtly different things, you know? Uh, or they can, an E5 one place can feel completely different than E5 another place. Um, I guess it's the same in the States, you know? But I th- yeah, not the biggest fan of the British trad grading system. Um, I think, yeah, it works quite well for on-site trad climbing up to sort of like E6, E7, and then it kind of just falls apart um, in these higher grades. Um, because, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, I just don't think as many people are on-sighting anymore. Um, and, uh, you know, like sport climbing grades and bouldering grades have like gone up astronomically, but the trad on-site grade hasn't, you know, like people are still on-sighting the same grades they always were doing. People were on-sighting E7s in like, like the eighties, I guess. Um, I'm not sure earlier than that, but yeah. You know, that that was a great on-sighted in the 80s, 90s, you know, and a lot a lot after that. But um we haven't we're not on sighting E9s, you know, we're not on sighting E10s, but now people are on sighting 9A. So <laughs> yeah, like, people, yeah, like one person, yeah. Well, <laughs> Maybe two. A lot of people have on sighted like 8B plus. That's yeah, sure. yeah. 8B plus yeah. on sighting a lot. Um, and there's a lot of people in the UK who can definitely on sight 8B and reflash 8B plus. So yeah. But then maybe they're not people going out trad climbing. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, has has anybody on-sided an E9? I think E9's been flashed. James Pearson flashed E9. Okay. I remember, I remember that. Um, yeah, I saw that he tried to sort of kind of flash uh, Neil Gresham's lexicon thing, which was given E11. Um, but, you know, also, you see my what we do in the shadows. I genuinely believe if I gave a strong sport climber all the beta under the sun, like, you know, someone like Magos or Andra or whatever, of course they don't say it. Mm. There's nothing to worry about. It's just, if I taught them how to place the gear and stuff, I'm sure they don't say it. Um, and it's the sort of thing that a strong sport climber could come along and do really, really quite quickly without needing too much knowledge of trad climbing. Um, but, you know, you just have to like, give a bit of an introduction there's definitely other trad climbs that are much much easier which would give them a lot more problems uh, that's again that's a tricky thing you know with, with trad climbing you know it's yeah you get you get some things which are given high grades and they're straightforward and you get other things that are given high grades and they're definitely not straightforward you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean yeah i mean us americans always have the classic example of indian creek you know like i've i've done a fair bit of trad climbing but it's been very 
facey, you know, sporty sort of trad climbing where you're using a crack for protection, but you're really face climbing basically. Yeah. I know that if I went to Indian Creek, I'd just get my ass kicked because I've never climbed like a 0.5 splitter crack, you know, with like finger locks or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'd just get totally pumped. And, it, you know, I'd probably go at like 5.11 or 12 minus or something like that. Well, when I, when I went to Yosemite for the first time, I was at a crag and I uh, had only been climbing on granite once before in my life. And this was, I was like thrown right in the deep end. I was on a 5.7, flailing around, <laughs> arse hanging out, barely like get bloody, you know, meter to meter hanging on the rope. And when I came down, this guy at the crag was like, hey, dude, yeah, what's up? You know, and he were chatting away and he was like, yeah, what do you do for a living? And I was like, kind of embarrassed and he said, well, you know, I guess I'm kind of like a professional climber. And he laughed and he was like, no, really, what do you do? I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I don't know what I do. <laughs> you know? who, who am I? <laughs> yeah, who am I? What am I doing with my life? Um, yeah, uh, but you know, that's it. You know, there's different styles and you know, you can't be cute at everything. But you know, you picked it up pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah, I mean you free climbed El Nino, which is which is super badass. Yeah, that was that was that was probably like three weeks after that experience. <laughs> <laughs> well um i want to talk more about what we did in the shadows and i have one more question for you before we dive into that this is another question from christoph and it's this question got a lot more interesting to me hearing everything you've been saying about not being a natural at the scary stuff um christoph wanted to know what does robbie do to steal his mind for scary leads and i think that's probably a more interesting question for you, given that you're not a natural at it, than for someone who's just good at that. Um, what do you do? Do you have conversations with yourself before you set off on a, you know, like, let's take what we did in the shadows, for example. You had already climbed it successfully on microtraction, I believe, and then you just had to send the thing. You just had to go on lead and place the gear and, and go for it. What does your prep look like? Are you having conversations with yourself? Is there anything you're telling yourself getting ready for that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not, not too complicated. It's pretty straightforward. Um, I think, well, first and foremost, I think I have to ascertain that I have made sure that all the gear I am getting, if it's a head point, uh, all the gear I've got on the wall is the best gear that I can get, yeah? I want to make this as safe as possible um, if, it's, if it's got any sort of gold nature to it. And I guess the same thing if, you're, if I was doing on-site trad. I think... The key thing with on-site trad is is uh, making sure that you are not putting yourself unnecessarily into risk. That you are doing, you know, you're 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 moving upwards with conviction, and you know that you you know you can get through it. Yeah. Um. If you are, if you know, I I would sit around at one point and make sure I get as much gear as possible, and I balance it out, and I'm happy with it before questing on. <clears throat> when I quest on. I, yeah, I do have a chat with myself. In fact, in the upcoming Orkney film, you hear me, because I have a microphone, you hear me talking to myself. Out loud. Yeah, out loud. Like, And I do that when I'm on the wall. I, In fact, actually, I had a wee mantra that um, I've used periodically over the years, which is literally just one more move. I just have that in my head. It's one more move, one more move. Um, and it just takes me... Outside, it doesn't it stops me thinking of anything negative 
stops me thinking of anything that might, you know, take me out of the situation and just focuses me on the moves that I'm doing. Uh, and that has really helped me with red point nerves, overcoming sort of like red point nerves on big projects I've had. Um, but it also helped when I was scared of falling. I mean, I actually learned that when I was scared of falling indoors mm. back in the day. I read it in a book about climbing psychology. And then I used it then. And then I used it again for like red point nerves. And now I use it again in trad climbing when I'm, when I'm like scared on a climb. But funnily enough, like, I don't think that it's a good idea to shut out anything, shut out everything when you're in serious situations. I think there needs to be some sort of understanding of whether if you know you can get through it, you know, you then commit to it and you you don't hold back, you you go for it, you know, that's fine. But if there's if there's a if there's a lot of doubt there, it would be stupid to just continue regardless. And actually I had a very, I had an almost like life altering accident when uh, I kind of first started trad climbing. Um, and that was a moment when I just shut everything off because I thought that was what you did in trad. And um, I was actually climbing uh, at the same crag that my project is at the moment down in Northumberland in a crag called Backbowden. And there's a classic E6 there called Peak Technique. You basically climb up this pillar, you get onto this big crack, like horizontal crack, put some gear in, sort of commit to a slab, and you just climb probably like eight meters up this like blank slab to the top. And I was trying to on-site it, and I got to within two meters or even one meter from the top. And if you want, there's a video on YouTube, I'll send it to you as well, you can watch it. There's a video on YouTube of me slipping and falling off and decking from an incredible height. Um, and I remember that accident, I really severely winded myself, but I, apart from that, was totally unharmed. But that could have changed my life forever. I could have broken my back, broken my neck, could have been paralyzed. It's a sort of fall you look at and you think, that guy shouldn't, shouldn't be okay. Mm. Um, wow. And when you, when you watch me climbing in the video, you can see, I'm climbing, I'm climbing like an idiot. My, my toes are pointed up. My, my ankles are like really high. I'm not trusting the feet, but I'm committing anyway. There's nothing to grab onto. You just, it's the sort of climb you have to relax on. You have to be really confident stepping up on the smears. And I did not climb like that at all. And it was purely because I thought trad climbing was about being brave mm. and just committing anyway. Um, and it was stupid and it was a, a hell of a lesson to learn. Um, and I, I realize now, you know, that's not how you approach trad climbing. Um, I've, since then, I've always been about, you know, trad climbing is about being making something as safe as possible, whether that's making uh, a situation safer with gear or whether that's making your, your, your experience safer by you being a good climber and, and being able to control your mind and move confidently um, rather than like an idiot as I was on that route. Well said. That's super interesting. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, I'm nice. like, I'm excited and and also very nervous to watch that film. My palms are sweating just hearing you talk about it. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, I remember like it was like probably one of the first videos I ever made of my climbing, 
and I went on YouTube and found like a heartbeat. We <laughs> heartbeat in the background. As I get closer to the bit where I fall off. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, awesome. I want to talk more about your filmmaking in a little bit too. But let's talk about what we do in the shadows. So I just watched that this morning. Loved it, by the way. Really great film. Really interesting. Um, lots of depth to it. Like it's, it's kind of a, kind of an interesting journey and there's a lot of you and, and who you are and you're just internal kind of processing in that film. But let's talk about the, the route a little bit first. So this is an E10, um, basically like a 514B trad route that's relatively safe according to what you just said. Um, you did it in November, 2021 and it was I've got it in my notes here, your biggest trad project to date. You were trying it with Dave McLeod. You did the first ascent and then he did the second, like just minutes after you did, which is so cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe just describe the route. We'll start with that. Yeah, sure. So the climb is in this place called Duntelchig. Um, it's a small um, local crag to a, a city called Inverness in the highlands of Scotland. And Duntelchig, as a crag, it's it's a really popular venue for local uh, climbers. You know, it's, it's people who climbed there for for years and years and years. But the first time I went there was on a climbing trip in 2020, just after lockdown. And a friend of mine had told me it's just a good trad a trad crag to go along and do some mileage on a rest day. So me and my friend went and had a look at it. And I arrived at the crag and I looked up at this big overhang and thought, I wonder what goes through there. And nothing went through there. And I was like, what? Why does nothing go to the big overhang? <laughs> so I I didn't even do another route. I just went to the top of the crag. I abseiled in and I found loads of holds. And I was like, my God, like, this is amazing. This is this has to go. And so I, I spent a day just like playing in the moves. And then a day later, I did uh, the first route that goes through the big overhang called Nosferatu, which takes the obvious line of weakness through the big steepness and along this crack feature, and um, that's an E8, 6C. Um, Dave McLeod also got the second ascent of that. Can you translate that to the American grading system for me? Oh, E8, 6C. It's probably 13, 13 BC, I'd say. Something like that. Um, Dave said 13A, but he's a sandbagger. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's no way 13A. What are you talking about? Yeah, I thought it was like a hard 13B, maybe like low-end 13C. Okay. And I've got another friend of mine did it, um, Alex Moore, actually. He repeated it. He got the third ascent. And you, this guy, Boulder's Font 8B, you know, he's a beast. V13, his, yeah. His guns were like flipping bulging out you know he looked like he was gonna pop an artery no matter how hard he was pulling i was like quite happy to see that it took you know alex a couple of days of effort it didn't just go down <laughs> super easily um and anyway is that one safe like what, how would you grade that safety wise yeah it's, it's the same so basically it's actually got exactly the same gear as um as what we do in the shadows so what you do what you do for it is basically climb up this pillar and then overhang starts and uh, you go into the overhang and you do some couple of tricky moves and you get this knee bar and you can place a bomber cam kind of high up off the knee bar. And then once you get, um, you then do some quite tricky moves coming into the undercuts. Um, I'm a bit taller, so I didn't find getting into the undercuts that hard, but Dave really struggled with it. 
Um, so that first section is probably like a V8 boulder problem. Once you get into the undercuts, um, you can actually, I, for an Osratu, I place some gear out right, but actually you don't really need it. And then you basically bust out right along a crack and then kind of go up a bigger rep feature. And then it finishes by mantling over the top of the whole crack. Um, you know, it's, it's great that, that we, I did that as a first ascent and I still think it's one of the most, you know, special trad routes I've, I've done in Scotland. It's just really cool moves, a really beautiful place. Um, but what we do in the shadows, when you get up into those undercuts after doing the V8 boulder problem, you do a few moves left. So you've got the same gear, same gear, the level of the gear at this point. And then you basically climb up this blank wall on these tiny little edges. And this wall is probably, I'd say probably 40 degrees overhanging. And the very, very tip of it, it actually, it's like a concave feature. Like it probably starts at like, yeah, close to 40. And then as it kind of gets over, it gets more onto 40. And then the very end of it is probably like 50 degrees at the very final like lip uh, section. Um, and then I'd say the boulder problem, you know, when me and when me and Dave first started trying that that section of the climb to try and do what we do in the shadows, I remember we talking about it and we were like, it's it's probably probably like seven C boulder or something. It's probably like V nine. And then, you know, we had so many sessions on it. Mm. And Dave, one time Dave was like, Oh yeah, I did it. I was like, Oh, a nice one. And then I was like, Do you think it's V nine still? And he's like, Oh, it could be a bit harder. I was like, taken Dave quite a while to get this boulder problem. I've still not done it. And it's not uncommon for me to like flash like that grade. I was like, what? I mean, <laughs> this isn't, this isn't right. <laughs> so, so yeah, I said, I kind of was like, I think it's a bit harder. So we settled at seven C plus boulder. Um, I don't trust Dave at all when it comes to these grades. <laughs> he's just, yeah, he's, he's really, he's a really good climber, but I think he's, Sometimes the grades, but, <laughs> but um, anyway, yeah. So like, I think it, we settled at seven C plus boulder, so V ten. But um, having you know, I think it would be a, a lot harder than V ten in a, a lot of places. Mm. Uh, yeah, having done like that grade in like places like Bishop and Magic Wood, and you know, like some of the sort of like big bouldering areas in Rocklands, especially. I mean, in Rocklands, it'd be flipping V12. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, that's another conversation. So that, that's basically <laughs> that's basically the, the the way it goes. It's like a V8 boulder problem into something like V10 on vicious crimps. And yeah, as you climb up the, the crimps, you're getting further and further away from the gear. And then you have this, like, basically, for me, it was a kind of like a dead, a big dead point to the top of the wall. Um, for Dave, because he's shorter and um, he didn't dead point it he did like a couple one or two smaller moves on some vicious crimps and then went to the lip static or not static but like a little bit of a pop um but yeah it just it was quite cool we just did it in two different completely different ways it showed that it can be done uh, by a shorter climber and a taller climber and mm. so yeah i'm actually i know there's, an, there's actually an english climber a strong english climber from north wales who's expressed quite a lot of interest in trying it so he said he might come up this month actually and try it so i'm quite excited to see what he thinks nice yeah that's awesome yeah thanks for sharing all that um and the video is great like i said it's it really shows the process which i think is so cool how long did you spend working on this thing i mean it sounds it seemed like from the video that you had a season on it 
And then you really focused a lot of your winter training for this thing and then came back to it. But yeah, what was the, what was the process like time-wise? So from, from having um, found it in 2020, um, doing Nosferatu, started working on it a little bit in the summer of 2020, but um, it was just too hot. So I left it and then came back a little bit later in the autumn. Uh, and then that's kind of, the, so the story is basically, I, I started trying it again and I was making, making some really good headway. And then my dad um, got very ill um, and was in hospital. And my mum was actually in hospital as well. Then she was very ill. So both my parents were in hospital. So then I basically had to put everything um, on hold. And uh, and then my dad died. And yeah, the winter, we, were, we went straight into lockdown shortly after. And, um, and yeah, it was just like the most awful period of my entire life. Mm. My mom was seriously unwell. My dad had just died. She was depressed. We were dealing with a lot of stuff. Um, you know, that was just, it was just an awful, awful, awful period. And, uh, it was also, it's just a very dark and dingy winter, very cold and wet and lockdown as well. So no one could go anywhere. It was just, yeah, totally miserable time. And yeah, I did use that winter period. Like I built a board in like a barn next door to my, my mom's house. And I used that period to kind of train. But it was kind of a, the time training was also me escaping from this little bit of hell that I was currently living in. You know, I was, I was my mom's care at the time as well, because she had really gone downhill. And so my only, real escape was going to that board and yeah i made like a replica of like what we do in the shadows and watched videos of it and and kind of just immerse myself in it but with the lockdown it lasted so freaking long and um, it lasted a long long winter and then sort of into the start of spring i lose track of like the, the times and dates and everything but it just felt like around forever and i i think with no end in sight um i did just lose I just lost myself a little bit um, at that, in that period of time and, and just kind of just needed, needed a break from it. And then, yeah, as, this kind of, as the lockdown ended, I think as we were coming closer to the end of lockdown, the weather started getting a bit better. And I remember going for this climbing session at a local crag. Like it's only, I said there's no crag climbing in, near Edinburgh, but there's, in Edinburgh, there's possibly, one of the worst crags in existence five minutes from my house <laughs> it's this really it's this piece of shite called a gas's rock that's actually absolutely amazing <laughs> it's, <the same laughs> time. it's like total choss everything's falling off or jiggling around waiting to fall off um and there was just like i remember going down for this day it was sun was shining and i arrived at the crag and there was just loads of people there all bouldering and I hadn't seen another climber in such a long time because uh, I'd only been on that board. And it was just, I just loved being outside with people. And I didn't actually know anybody. They were just like random people there. And um, my girlfriend was there and we just had a really fun evening climbing session. And I left, you know, just feeling so like, I don't know, just amped up and like re-energized. And I was just, I was just saying to Mario, I was like, I just, I think I just need to go climbing. I think I just need to enjoy climbing again and mm. get out, remember how to do this. 
and and so yeah we ended up going climbing at all these shite uh quarries uh around the central belt like particularly rathal quarry which you know i say shite but it's actually like again when it's all you've got you know it's great and again i went to the crag and they were, they were so busy because everybody was experiencing the same thing all they wanted to do was get out and do something and the weather was getting better now so there were these crags were so busy and it was great to sort of have that community climbing again and to, to have yeah it was just a wonderful wonderful thing to experience and um and so yeah like you know things things got on a lot better my my mum started to progress as well she got a bit better and so everything was kind of like moving forward and then i got a trip in the summer away to up to orkney to try the long hope that year that was 2021 um and then in the autumn i decided i was actually late some it was probably like in the last half of summer i decided i want to do what we do in the shadows and so i basically was like i need to start training so I uh, I actually got the help of uh, Buster Martin, uh, Kaizen coach, Kaizen climbing uh, as a coach. And he gave me a training program to follow. And I basically just trained from sort of like midsummer through to the start of autumn. And then when the conditions started getting a bit better, I just started heading up there. And when I started trying it, actually, I'd say the conditions were not great. It was still pretty too warm, but I was just getting conditioned on the moves. And then as the conditions got better and better and better, I was like, yeah, this is, this is going to happen, you know? And, and yeah, and eventually it did happen. Mm. <laughs> great. Yeah. That's pretty much the timeline. Yeah. Mm. Man. Well, well, first things first, I'm so sorry to hear about your dad and thank you so much for sharing all that. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know all that. I mean, I'd watched the film and you, it's a really emotional film. Like you're training in the dark barn and talking about how all the color had gone out of the world for you and feeling this cold weight on your chest. And I didn't know enough of your story to know exactly what you were talking about. And I was planning to ask about that. Um, yeah. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I guess when I was making the film, I was out, I, I was just thinking of, I, I was maybe sharing that stuff, but maybe didn't put too much context into what that was actually going on about there. I guess yeah, it, there was, it was definitely like the worst time of my life. Um, it's hard to imagine. Like, yeah. Oh God. I just hope I never have to go through anything like that again. But yeah, it was, I mean, there's a lot, obviously there's a lot of people in the world suffering as well. Um, it just felt like everything seemed to be happening at the same time. Mm. Lockdown, mom not being well, dad passing away. The, you know, the, the, yeah, the funeral was pretty grim as well because we had these bloody restrictions so nobody mm. could come. You know, it was just yeah. yeah, really sad state of affairs. But you know, we got out of it in the end. So hopefully we never have to do another bloody lockdown. Yeah, yeah, knock on wood. How's your mom doing now? Uh much, much, much better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it. a story that's another story in itself. She's she's doing Yeah, we to be honest, at the start of this year. We didn't think she would have, we didn't think she was going to last much longer. Um, and it turns out that it was just very bad advice from a, a doctor who is, thank God he's retired. But um, she's now, um, she's got kidney failure and it basically didn't really, for some reason, didn't, um, well, basically she's on dialysis now. So she can basically, um, she just goes in three days a week and she's absolutely fine. She has like a, she has like a, a form of, 
It's called amyloidosis. Um, it's basically when a protein in the body just gets um, constantly made and it kind of like gets clogs up um, like kidneys or liver or the, you know, the heart and eventually it causes these uh, organs to fail. But um, thankfully at the moment, it's kind of not really doing much. Um, so she's got kidney failure. But, and so it's remarkable. She went from being someone on death's door who was given like a month to live and honestly looking like like she just looking like she couldn't she could barely move and we had like people who deal with people who are on death's door you know coming around saying to me like if at any point looking after her becomes too much she gives a call and she can she can die in our our place uh having no sorts of conversations and then now she's like absolutely fine and she's driving around and having you know lunch with her friends and you know just doing normal life again and it's so crazy yeah so i'm just really thankful that you know things have improved in the way they have yeah Mm. Well, you made that comment a second ago about how you didn't provide much context in that film. I don't think you needed to. I mean, it was a beautiful, really touching film. And you definitely get the sense of what's going on just without the specifics. But, you know, that's not important to the viewer. Um, and then you dedicated the film to your dad. So I was I was suspecting um, that maybe he had passed and wanted to ask you about him. But you dedicated it to your dad and had a little line in there at the end of the film that he's your biggest inspiration. Tell me a little bit about your dad, and I'm curious to hear what about him inspired you so much, and why do you what do you think about with him when you think of him being your biggest inspiration? Well, I can't remember if I said biggest inspiration. I think I think I may have said uh, I was his biggest fan, but I I'm not sure if that's exactly what I've used. I can't remember. My dad was an inspiration to me. Um, he was also immensely proud of me. Um, he had a little shop in a town in a sort of like suburb of Edinburgh called Curry. Um there's actually a kind of like Dougie Haston, I think, Dougal Haston, sorry, who was a Scottish climber. He actually from Curry. But um he uh, had a little bathroom shop there. And uh after he died, I had a message on Instagram from a random woman who basically said that she was one of my dad's customers and that when he was selling her a bathroom, he hadn't stopped talking about me so much. She'd end up following me on Instagram and now like follows all my climbing adventures. <laughs> but it's, it, you know, that is my dad in a nutshell. Like he just was so immensely proud mm. of the person I'd become in my climbing that he was talking, talking, talking about me. But um, <clears throat> my, it was very embarrassing actually. But um, <laughs> but my my dad, you know, he, he wasn't sporty. You know, he was a businessman. He was an entrepreneur. He loved selling. He he, was, he fits in kind of like Jewish stereotype quite quite well actually. Um, he was he was he's a Jew. He was a Jew, and uh, he um, yeah he just he just like loved loved the sell, loved the sale, loved his little shop, and uh, worked tirelessly my entire life. When I was born, I was only a year old. My dad um, was given a year to live with advanced metastatic prostate cancer that at the time he had a sore back and he complained to his doctor about back for many years and wanted to get it scanned and they hadn't done it and uh, eventually it turned out that he had prostate cancer it spread into his spine and that was the source of the pain and you know i remember him 
and my mom telling me that when he found out he had a year to live with me being only a year old and um, a young family and uh he was like distraught like he was crying on the phone to her having just heard, got this news from the doctor and what i think is absolutely incredible is that my dad lived on for a further 29 years and defied basically all of the expectations of the doctors people who said he shouldn't be alive he should be dead and he just kept on going and I, I do think that a big part of that is his like i guess it's just his drive and his unwillingness to like die because he he wanted to look after his family and he had something to live for so yeah i mean from from that point of view he was incredibly inspiring you know he also you know massively provided for me he wasn't a hands-on dad you know he's not the sort of he wasn't the sort of dad who would like be like all right son let's go out in the garden and throw the ball and do some catch or you know he wasn't he wasn't he didn't like come to like pick me up at well he didn't come to pick me up and climb me actually no he didn't he didn't he didn't like uh you know take me everywhere and you know take me out into the mountains and teach me what it is to be a climber because he wasn't a climber he didn't do that sort of thing he wasn't that sort of dad but he provided in a way that allowed me to go climbing and to like pursue my ambitions and build a career in this sport you know that a life that i absolutely love and uh it's funny when my dad growing up my dad was always at work and i never ever thought anything else off it but the one thing i remember always thinking was don't want to grow up to be like my dad because he's always bloody working um, but you know what my dad loved his work. Mm. He absolutely loved working. He lived for that shop. He loved selling the customers. He loved customers. You know, customer, I, I you know, still get messages from people that my dad, you know, sold bathrooms to saying he was a lovely man and that they're so happy that they met him. And growing up, you know, becoming the man I am today, I think I see so much of my dad in me now. I am a workaholic when it comes to climbing. I'm never not, you know, organizing stuff or, you know, I'm either like organizing like film thing, you know, with like sponsors or making films or like organizing, you know, climbing trips or going coaching or doing photo shoots or just some random stuff or, or writing articles. I'm like a total like workaholic. And uh, I think I basically just, I am my dad. I have become my dad. I've become the person that I thought I never wanted to be. But the thing is, I now understand that my dad loved what he did, and so do I. And I think that's pretty special. Super special. Man, thanks so much for sharing that, Robbie. That's a really cool perspective. Yeah, no worries. Can I ask you more about uh, what we did in the what we do in the shadows? Yeah, absolutely. Let's get back on climbing topics. <laughs> no, this is, I mean, this is amazing, man. Yeah, I really appreciate you being so open. It's its really cool to hear all this. Uh, but I do want to ask you about your time with Dave McLeod. Um, from what I gather, he was a big childhood inspiration for you, um, as he is for me. And I think of you as kind of like a young Dave McLeod. It seems like you've really modeled your life of climbing in a similar vein. Um, you know, he's such a jack of all trades and you do everything as well. And of course, you're from the same area and are doing a lot of the same, you know, adventurous Scottish climbing. 
And then to have this opportunity to work on this project with him, I'm, it just made me really curious. Are there, what did you learn from Dave? Can you share like one to three things that you learned from Dave during the process of trying what we do in the shadows? Yeah, several things actually. So Dave, when it comes to detail, is an absolute surgeon. And I don't think I've met anybody who can squeeze as much out of a client as he can. <laughs> he, he can figure out like real subtle things about movement, about the position of his body and the weight and the gear placements, just like everything to basically bring that climb down to his level. I, I definitely think that me and Dave share a lot of uh, similarities in climbing context, specifically, I guess, around like technique and way we approach climbs. I've never been a very strong climber, you know, for the grade I climb, I, I feel like I'm not, I'm not dead hanging one arm with like 20 kilos or whatever like that, or doing one arm pull-ups. But I think I can squeeze a lot out of a climb uh, about my technique. Dave is that on flipping steroids. Mm. Uh, so I think it made me just, it's, you know, I think it just made me aware of like how much more I can get out of, out of you know, learning how to climb a, a rock climb before I think about I need to get stronger um, or I need to get fitter. That's cool. Yeah, that, was, that, was, that was really interesting. Um, what else? Uh, there was actually something else I had in my mind. I've forgotten it now. Um, I mean, he's just, he's, he has another thing, actually. He's, he's very patient and he's very relaxed. And I'll be honest, I hadn't climbed with Dave before for, uh, what we do in the shadows. And, uh, I had in my mind this idea of Dave that he would be at the crag, you know, early, you know, cracking on, you know, getting on with things, you know, maybe like. This is this is work. This is what we're going to hear here to do. You know, but actually, it was going to be opposite. Um, the first set, first session, I remember him arriving at this sort of parking bit, and I was like, "All right, do you want to head long?" He was like, "Fancy having a cup of tea first. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> "Absolutely, that's I hundred percent fancy cup of tea." So I made him a cup of tea, and then you know we got our gear together, and we sauntered along, and we arrived at the crag, and we're looking at the crag. And I was like, "Yeah, what well, do you want to go first? And he was like. Yeah, but I may have another cup of tea. So <laughs> we had another cup of tea at the base of the crag. I was like, this is my kind of guy. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, like, I, you know, there was a couple of th things that he, he did, which I quite liked. Like, you know, I remember one day uh, I was on the wall and I was like trying the moves and, and he was done. He was done for the day. He, he'd had a big, big session on it. And he was just sitting there watching me. And I said to Dave, I was like, oh man, if, if you want to head off, you know, don't worry, I'll clean up and get the ropes down and everything. And he was like, no man, it's cool. I'm just watching you. And bear in mind, he's still like an hour, an hour and a 10 drive away. So it's a bit of a drive to get home. And he, he just, you know, every every day we were climbing there, he, he'd wait until, you know, I was done uh, or we were both done. And uh, we'd leave at the same time and often have a cup of tea at the, at the van to finish off. You know, um, he's someone who's like very in touch with nature as well. He just, he loves being outside. And I think, I don't know, I just think that yeah, so, sometimes maybe I'm, I'm in too much of a hurry, you know, marry, 
Brother Mario always says that when I'm walking to the crag, it's like I'm charging to the crag. I'm like running, like I'm like got this real like walk, like I'm just kind of like get get. I want to get there as quick as possible. But Dave was very relaxed, and it was a very very nice environment to be in, especially with working working a hard climb with some somebody else. Actually, and I'd say the third thing, which I really liked about Dave, and again, I guess it's a lesson as well, is you know. I remember this like one moment in the van. Oh yeah. So basically that day he had made a big link. I think he'd done it from like the start of the hard bit to the end. You know, before that, it's only easy climbing up to this one bit. And he just looked like he cruised it. He looked like really easy. And uh, I remember back at the van, I said, you know, Dave, if you want to lead, lead it, you should go for it. And he was like, no, it's all right, man. I'll just, I'll wait until you're ready to, to go for it. And then we can try it together. And I was like, honestly, man, I don't care. I was like, I think if you're ready, just go for it. And he was like, nah, 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 nah. He's like, I think I want to wait until you're ready. And I was like, okay, that's, let's, let's do it that way then. And I just thought that was such a nice attitude to have. There was no like, it's not like competition. It didn't feel like it was like we we're fighting, fighting for like first ascent. It just felt like two people got along really well, going climbing together enjoying being outside, enjoying chatting to each other, enjoying the climbing and just learning from each other. And I, and yeah, I'd say like, it was just, it was just a really positive environment. I'd like to like to think that if I was climbing with somebody else, that they would think the same of me. And so I think I'd maybe like in future, just try and try and be the same as Dave. Be like Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I love it, man. That's good. awesome. Yeah, I'd say those are the things that I, I really took a lot from Climb with Dave. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I want to check in with you, Robbie. How much more time do you have? I know you have a, a hard out at some point. Um I've got a so six thirty. I'm picking up a I'm picking up Charles, the sea captain actually, from uh from the train station. Uh so that's like an hour away. So I guess maybe like it's only fifteen minutes drive from here, so like another four. 40 minutes or something I've got. Okay. So as long as, as long as you, I don't know how long we've been going for. So Awesome. That should be, that should be plenty. I did want to ask you about some tactics from that film and from that climb in particular. And it sounds like just from what you just described and seeing this in the film, it sounds like you did a lot of rope solo, um, top rope yeah. soloing instead of belaying each other to work out the climb. Why is that? I mean, I've seen Dave do that. He's actually shared some really amazing videos of his setup and, you know, how to top rope solo on a shunt and how to um, put directionals in and use rope protectors for mountain crags and things like that. But yeah, why is that? Why did you guys approach it that way instead of belaying each other and top roping? Well, I would say it's probably a lot of the time I have found it's just easier to work things on a on a on a shunt or a device any device really that you are using on a static a fixed a fixed rope than uh than belaying um i feel like you've got more autonomy you can go up and down and there's not a person belaying you there on this particular climb it was very tricky and um, if you're on a top rope if you fell off the top rope you just swing straight out and you'd be in nowhere no man's land whereas with a fixed line you could actually tension the fixed line to gear below you using a gree gree. So say, you know, you've got the cam, you've got the, the static coming over the lip of the, the overhang. 
comes down and then you've got a bit of gear below you at the start of the crux. Yeah, green green, you just tension that thing. If you're on a shunt, a micro traction, a Tazla three, you can climb up that tensioned rope without any problems. And if you fall off, you're not falling all the way out the overhang. You're just like there. You can still like easily grab the handholds. Mm. So for that situation, it made complete sense. Um, I mean, I actually I think I I prefer working things on. Um, I now I actually use a Tazlove three as my as my rope soloing device. Um, I way prefer working ropes in this way rather than having someone belay me. Um, I actually went on a trip to Greece. It was my first sport climbing holiday in many years, actually, um, this spring. And uh, I did like I did like I think an eight B thirteen D every day of the trip. And wow. uh, I think like uh, what I would do is. I would get a, a friend to belay me up on the route. I'd get to the top. I'd put a fixed rope in and I'd just work the thing. And then they could go and climb and do other routes if they want, if there's more of us. And then when I'm done, I just go and ask for a belay and I would do the route. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, it was just the easiest way. It's just such an easy way to do things. I think when you learn how to do it properly, it, it, it's just efficient. Yeah. Say the name of the device that you like again. It's called a Taz Love 3. It's T-A-Z-L-O-V-3. Um, so Taz is like a French company, I think. And they specialize in gear that's typically used for tree work. And uh, Taz Love 2 is also a device. The difference between the Taz Love 2 and Taz Love 3 is the 3 has a, a mechanism where you push a button to open it and you don't actually have to take it off your harness. So if you're, say descending ropes and there's multiple uh, anchors you don't ever have to actually take the device off where you could potentially drop it um i used the taz love three when i was on orkney for example and i used it as my main ascent and descent device so like a grigri um it would it would like i would abseil down with it and as i was climbing up it would also be taking in the rope the taz love three is without a shadow of a doubt the best device on the market for rope soloing um, I also just use it generally for ascending ropes. You can descend with it because it's got a handle like a Grigri. It's absolutely amazing. It has never failed on when I on my 10.5 mil static ropes. And it seems to just catch very quickly. Even if you're not falling heavily onto it, you could just sit down onto it and it catches. Mm. I don't think you I don't know if it's rated for ropes below 10 mil, but I'm pretty I, I like my 10.5 mil ropes i think they're beefy um and they work very well so i recommend if anyone's going to be using the tazel three just get 10.5 mil static and you're fit to go and um, the only problem is quite expensive they're about 150 or 180 quid um i was very lucky a friend of mine bought me as a present um christmas present and i think it's one of the best presents i've ever received it's just so good nice <laughs> yeah Wow, that's yeah. awesome to hear. Um, I'm really intrigued because it's the—I mean—the biggest pain in the ass with top rope soloing is lowering, right? Like, I—I yeah. I use um, I have like a micro traction and a shunt, and I use—I use the micro traction as my backup. And with that, I have to take off the micro, and then I can kind of use like one of those ascenders with the click, uh, the quick yeah. like trigger, you know, and I can like lower down the way that Dave does with the shunt. But it's not that convenient. I mean, it's not as convenient as lowering on a gree gree. So that's really intriguing. 
I honestly, um, I used to use a micro traction and a on a shunt as well. It's a game changer. The Taz, it just it's you can use it. I, I don't think you need a saying this, but I, I don't really think you need a backup for it. Um, it it just it just works. If I was using a, sh- I, I have used shunts and micro tractions without backups, and now having seen a lot of the videos, a micro traction actually failed on me once. Oh. Scared the living shit out of me. Yeah, um, and. Uh, you know nothing. You know you can't say that anything won't fail, but just the mech, the way the, the mechanism in uh, Taz of three, it's the rope. The way the rope goes through it, it you can kind of see that when when you load it, there's just the rope's not going anywhere. You know, mm. it's just it's going to jam. It kinks all the way down. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could easily use like a backup, like micro traction below it, and it wouldn't cause any problems. But the beauty is, you can just say you have like a short crux section. That you want to just repeat over and over and over again, it's super easy. Just mm. go up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. Yeah, perfect. And actually, everybody, everybody that's um, seen me using one and uh, I've been climbing with regularly have gone out and bought them. Really? Like, <laughs> every, <laughs> wow. Yeah. I think if you're reg, because I've obviously I let my friends use my Taz if I'm with them and they're just like, Jesus, we need to buy one of these. <laughs> the cool they come in like three different colors. So all your mates can have different colors. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, critical. It's so important. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Did Dave get one as well? Funnily enough, Dave has one. I don't know if he's using it, um, but I know he bought one. Um, he didn't buy one because of me. He, he actually saw me using it and was like, oh, you got one of those too. And then I asked him if he'd used it. This was quite a while ago. And he said he hadn't actually got around to it. Hmm. Um, but um, maybe he's using it now. I don't know. But um, he he has used a shunt for a very long time and he knows how that thing works and seems to be very happy with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always like like to improve on things. Yeah. Definitely and it feeds happy. up the rope easily when you're climbing. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you, in fact better than a shunt because wow. I found shunt sometimes sticks unless you've got quite a lot of weight on the other end of the rope. Mm. The Taz doesn't need a lot of weight. Very little, in fact. Um, sometimes the weight of the rope just dangling down is enough. You know, maybe just some shoes or something. Uh, it's wow. fine. Nice. Yeah. Well, awesome, man. I'm, I'm, I'm sold on it. I'm going to go uh, buy one of these things. I think because, yeah, the top rope. I mean, for my lifestyle, especially living in the van, like one of the, I, I've been bouldering a lot as long as I've been living in a van because it's just so much more convenient and being able to go out on my own schedule is, is such a. Um, I don't know, is is so helpful, I guess, you know, doing the podcast yeah. and everything and being able to plan around interviews and being able to do that for rope climbs would be just great. And I really haven't gotten that deeply into it, but, um, but yeah, you're, this is a really compelling, uh, sell actually, not just on this piece of equipment, but just on this kind of approach in general for red pointing. Yeah. I'll be honest, man. I, I would prefer it. Like, uh, I actually remember back in the day. I saw David Lama in CU's stick clip solo his way up an 8C plus and work it on a shunt. And I would probably have only have been like, I mean, David and me were the same age, but I would probably be like 17 or something at the time. And I had no clue what he was doing. I was like, what is this guy doing? He's like soloing and working something on his own. But I've never, I never see European climbers do that on sport climbs any other time apart from that one time. And I, I've never, and or are people at sport crags doing that, you know? But um yeah, I, I do it all the time now. 
I love it. I think it's the best way to do things. And um, I'm totally honest, it's really nice going out on your own to a crag and working a project on your own. Just, yeah, you know, especially if there's nobody else there. It's just Mm. like a beautiful thing. You're not beholden to getting a billier. You can spend as long as you want on the route. You know, you don't, you don't have to worry about anything other than just making sure that you're set up safe and and then just away you go. Have have a great, great session on your own. Yeah, that sounds, I mean, that sounds kind of dreamy to me. I I love climbing on my own. I love bouldering on my own. I love climbing with people as well. But yeah, I re- I'm really drawn to that sort of experience and um, it sounds really nice. It sounds pleasant. Yeah. Also just yeah. like, you know, being able to spend two hours working out a crux or a section or whatever and not stressing about your belay or down there freezing their ass off between pitches you know like that's got to be a really nice feeling too yeah definitely yeah yeah i think that's probably the crux of like projecting with somebody else is you got to have a committed belia so if you can bypass that somehow which this obviously does um then yeah you're winning a couple more questions about your setup how long is your static line oh i mean like I have loads of static rope in various lengths. Um, for Scotland, you typically could, you definitely always want to have a big hundred meter static for abseiling into stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I have like, like I don't know, like a fifty meter, and I probably have like an eighty meter as well, depending on on things. Um, yeah, it just depends really um, on on where you're going, really. Okay, and then going back to your trip to Greece, where you did all those eight Bs. So you're just carrying like a, let's say like a 50 meter static line up to the cliff along with your na- normal dynamic rope as well? Yeah, yeah, that was it. If I actually, when we were in Greece, I couldn't get a hold of a static. So I just used a dynamic okay. um, that someone gave me, um, which is very unusual. And I wouldn't normally do that. Um, it was quite an old dynamic. So maybe it was a wee bit, did, did, was a wee bit static. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I, I would normally always always climb on a on a static rope but yeah we always took two ropes to the crag so that i could do that so basically i think we were in a three mostly it was my girlfriend and my mate johnny and me and so i would be the loner they'd give me a bailey up something i'd put the rope in my static rope and then hang around there for a couple hours working out the moves whilst they went and did other stuff and then uh i'd like go over to one of them and go can i get a bailey now (laughs) (laughs) that's brilliant Yeah. yeah Nice. Um, back to the love three. This is my last question about your setup. You mentioned, uh, you said it's like 150 quid. Can you ballpark that for me? Do you have any idea, any guess as to what that would be in us dollars? Um, I have no idea. I, I mean, the, the, Brit, the British pound is like crashed. So it's probably this, I don't know. It's probably the same. I don't know. I'm it looks like really it's, sure. looks like it's pretty close. Oh, I said, I mean, I'm looking at one here saying it has at least 200 quid, but it definitely wasn't 200 quid when I got it. Um, yeah. Oh, 150 here. Yeah, it's 150 here uh, on treekit.com. That's not a plug. <laughs> I'm not sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> it's on Google. Yeah, it's between 150 and 180 quid. So I guess, yes, up to the $200 mark, I imagine. Yeah, 160 to $200 roughly. Okay, awesome. You can really poke on top rope on it. I don't know if you can really leap really on it. Um, I'm not sure about that. Um, I think I honestly think if you if you do a lot of rope soloing, 
it's a good thing to invest in because I definitely think it's a lot safer than a shunt and a micro traction and it's a lot mm. handier as well. So if you want a specialist device for top rope soling, that's your that's your bit of gear. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember watching uh, Dave's video about how to belay on a shunt and I bought a shunt and basically just copied his setup. And then maybe six months later, I saw a video that someone made about how the shunt can fail. Like the, they called it the scorpion catch where it can kind of flip upside down yeah. and the rope can come out. Yeah. Yeah. It scared the shit out of me. So then I bought a micro and I got like, you know, I figured out how to double that up and have a backup with the micro. But yeah, I mean, this just seems like it fixes all the problems. So that's awesome. I don't want to scare the shit out of people either, but like the micro traction, it, the reason it failed for me was the spring broke. So when a spring breaks, the teeth don't engage, mm. just hang limp and they flop around. Yikes. And if you look at that spring, it basically looks like a wound up paper clip. I mean, you're relying, you're, you're risking, you know, you're um, relying heavily on a paper clip functioning um that's going to stop you from essentially like flying down the rope to wherever the last bit of gear or the knot the last knot you put in is and mm -hmm. um, that's kind of terrifying and that's why i stopped using it um because it just yeah it wasn't worth it mm -hmm. um, but yeah i guess in some some point you're probably going to get a video of someone saying how bad the tazlov 3 is and <laughs> how it's <laughs> how what stuff can go wrong with it but yeah maybe just, does, i mean yeah, it might just be innovation, you know, people people yeah. solving problems and making better equipment. But yeah, for people listening, if you have a micro and you like it, just use a backup. Just use a Camp 4 yeah. lift or a shunt or something as a backup and vice versa. If you're using a shunt, just use a backup and yeah. Yeah. the chances of two things failing is incredibly, incredibly low. So it's true. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the long hope a little bit? Yeah. End with something. End with, end with something fun. I mean, this actually this this is great because this gets into your videos. Um, I'm going to read a comment from a patron. This isn't even a question, but Paul submitted this comment and just said that he really enjoys Robbie's YouTube videos. He knows how to climb hard, sport, scary trad, alpine multi pitch, and always seems to have a great laugh. His films show the struggles as well as, as the big sense, and yeah, he just loves your films. So. Um, cool. Yeah, and there and there's so much fun. I mean, that's let's actually go here. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your philosophy in climbing because your films show just how much fun you have. You have this really fun, like laid back way about you, especially when you're out there filmmaking and you're always having a laugh. I'm curious, how do you balance that with being a performance focused climber? It seems like the fun is really important to you. So, how do you think about that balance there? Well, I mean, I just I don't think I could perform unless I was having fun. That's, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's, you know, it's really funny actually because when I was probably quite young, I was like 18 or something, I went on this trip to Spain and there was this other Scottish climber out there called Alan Cassidy. He was a really, really good sport climber. And uh, I remember he had this sweet sort of mini project. He was about to get on it and his girlfriend at the time was like joking around at the bottom of the crag. And I, and I remember saying to her, I was like, oh, you should quiet because alan's about to get on the lead it's really serious and then alan looked at me and went i don't care it's like i'm supposed to be having fun you know this is i like to keep it relaxed and i was like oh okay you know <laughs> fair enough. Mm -hmm. and uh and honestly I'm, I'm exactly the same like some of my best ascents or the best things i've done in fact all the best things i've done have been done in a fairly relaxed jokey sort of situation one of my best friends, a guy called Andy Latta, 
He's a climber. Doesn't climb particularly hard. Sorry, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, But uh, he is such a laugh, man. Honestly, at the crag, I'm pissing myself with laughter just all the time. He doesn't give a shit about, you know, anything or egos or whatever. He's just always fun. So we've had some great trips abroad. And like some of my best, like hardest sport climbs have been done him bealing me because before I pull on, I'm just, I'm just like in a really good mood. I'm just like happy, you know, I'm like <laughs> having a great, great time. And, you know, talking about the long hope, uh, I chose um, my partner for the long hope with a guy I hadn't actually done a lot of climb with before, a guy called Alex Moore. And um, we hadn't done anything, any trad climb before, any big routes together, but we bouldered a bit together and I got along really well with, with him. We had a lot of fun and the Orkney trip was just a lot of fun. And that was a very stressful climb. Very scary, very hard, a lot could go wrong. And from the second we left the vans to the second we topped out, we were laughing. We were laughing the entire way, you know, all the way from the bottom to the top. Um, This is the long hope? This is the long hope, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, actually Alex did say something. I've got an upcoming film coming out about the long hope. I don't think I have, I don't think I actually included this uh, in the film but it was a, a nice thing that alex said was he said one of the biggest successes of that trip was the fact that we made something that's very hard very scary very fun mm. that i thought was an excellent way to summarize our experiences on the long hope and i guess in, in many ways our our experiences as a as a partnership um, and that's that's what I looked for in in, in, a, in a partnership actually in, in my friends who I go climbing with. Um, I, I look for people who I I'm going to have a lot of fun with and who you know I, I enjoy being around. Yeah, I don't actually know a lot of other professional climbers in Scotland. There's like only a I guess only a couple of real professional climbers, I guess. Um, but yeah, like. Most of my climb, most of my friends that I climb with, they're kind of just got ordinary jobs, you know. And like Alex, had to take off a lot of holiday um, to be able to uh, come on a climbing trip. And you know, who wants to go on a climbing trip that's like really grim and you're not going to have fun if you then got to go back to work afterwards, you know? So yeah, that, I, I like climbing with people who I get along with. Mm. They're going to have fun with. Let's back up a couple steps and uh, just have you describe what the long hope is. And for people that want to just see it for themselves, I mean, you have this upcoming film, but you already do have a film about the long hope from your first attempt, um, I yeah. believe, with your friends Colin and Emma. Is that right? Oh, Colin. Yeah, Colin and Emma. Yeah, Emma twice. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so so, so basically... <laughs> so entertaining, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I know you didn't send you know, on that funny. on that trip, but that was such an entertaining film. Yeah. Yeah, it's a funny film. Um, yeah, my my the new film is very, very, very different. It's funny in a completely different way. Um, I actually watched that film, the old film, the other day. There, and thought by comparison to this new film, it's utter shite. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it's it's also really good in a in a funny way. But um, yeah, basically, the long hope is actually probably the hardest sea cliff in the world. Um, it has rock climbing, trad climbing up to 13D, so 8B um, trad. Um, but that's not even the crux of it. 
It's a 400 meter odd um, sea cliff that has and it's sandstone. It has a lot of troughs, a lot of very, very sketchy, very dangerous sections. Um, the climbing might not be like super hard through those sections, but like easily one mistake and could be very serious. And and I think one of the, the hardest things about that place is the fact that, you know, it'd be very difficult for anyone to come and rescue you there. You know, it's not an easy place for anybody to access. Um, there's a lot of objective hazards, potential rockfall. There's <clears throat> these birds called fulmar, which are very well known in the British Isles. Uh, they're like a, they're a seabird and uh, they nest on the cliffs and they make the cliffs their home. And these the fulmars are a beautiful bird. They do have this slightly annoying, um, slightly disgusting defense mechanism, which they spit putrid vomit <laughs> at you if you come near them, especially if they've got an egg. Um, they're particularly like what, aggressive when they've got eggs, which is fair enough, you know, like they're just protecting their young. Um, when I went with Emma and Cullen the, in 2021, we actually went uh, during the nesting season. I didn't realize that at the time. I just went at the same time of the year as Dave McLeod and another guy, James McAfee and Ben Bransby had been the year, years before and just assumed that they wouldn't have had any issues with birds. But it turns out that was their peak nesting season. They had <laughs> eggs and they really didn't want us to be there. So we spent a lot of the trip um, dodging puke um, and just generally smelling quite awful because as soon as that stuff touches your clothing, it's almost impossible to get it off. <sighs> um, they actually recommend before going to uh, before going climbing on Scottish sea cliffs, if you're going in the bird season, the best thing you can do is go to a charity shop and get all your clothes from there because you'll be burning them afterwards. <laughs> you don't want to take any brand new like Patagonia like jackets or any. <laughs> nice like technical clothing with you um and it happens i'm sponsored by patagonia so i get it for free so yeah just burn it afterwards <laughs> <laughs> i'm just joking i didn't burn it afterwards actually the, you know it's pretty funny i i actually do think that it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a false statement to say that you can't get it out of your out of your clothes because if you really persistent and you really clean that stuff a lot then you can almost get the smell of bird sick out your clothes and then you've just got to wear it a lot until your smell eventually overpowers it. <laughs> <laughs> so I think Pro you're tip. talking about yeah, you're talking about six months really of like effort to get the your clothing back up to standard. Really, um, <clears throat> to be honest, I, it's quite funny. Sometimes I'll be walking past my girlfriend and she'll she'll sniff and she'll go, "Bobby, you're smelling a bit fulmary today." <laughs> I realize it was something I had in Orkney. <laughs> Still stinking of fulmar. Maybe I've just gotten so used to the smell, I don't really notice it anymore. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, yeah, I've completely forgotten where I was getting on at. Oh, so the birds. Oh, yeah. So um, this this year we decided to go before the birds laid their eggs. So I have a, a good friend, uh, Benji, who uh, used to work for RSPB, the Royal Society for Protection of Birds. He also did his university dissertation specifically on fulmars. So that was quite handy. And he told me if I go in May, they won't have laid their eggs. And so we arrived. I abseiled down the wall. No eggs 
loads of fulmars because it's technically still their nesting season. Like they're, they're, they started breeding, but they haven't laid their eggs. So that was fantastic. Um, we didn't really have to, to, to worry about that at all. Um, they were still a bit sicky. They, they definitely were still a bit vomity, but not quite as bad as the, the year prior. Um, yeah, there's actually this one, what was quite nice actually was, people are going to think I'm a crazy person for saying this, but I don't know, I'm, I'm an animal lover. And like, um, having been there the year before, um, I already knew like what to expect, kind of where the birds nested. And I still down and there's this little hole in the middle of the crux, you know, in the sort of like first quarter of the crux pitch, a little like kind of cave thing, like, you know, not big enough to get inside or anything. But the first year there was this bird living there and she had an egg. And uh, I called the bird Mildred. She was lovely. She actually didn't bother me too much. She didn't spew on me. She was very respectful. And, and I was very respectful of her. And I just climb around her, you know, I didn't want to get in her way. And it was, it wasn't super hard climbing there anyway, but it would have been nice to use like the edge of the, the big cave she was in as a hole. But, you know, I didn't want to go that near her. Anyway, came back a year later, abseil down. She's still there. And most people will think I'm crazy because they'll be like, well, surely it can't be the same bird. I swear to God, I recognize her. I could see it in her face. It was bloody Mildred. <laughs> it was the same bird. And there's a ledge below that. And I, I remember I had, there were all these birds living there as well. And I swear they were the same birds. I have footage of the birds from the previous year. They're the same ones. And I, and I looked it up and actually it's true. Fulmars uh, actually live quite a long time. They live like 30 odd years. Wow. They, 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 I think they, um, they mate for life. And they return to the same nest every year. So I was just meeting the same birds from the previous year. And um, and I think they got used to me. I think they, they knew who I was and they knew I wasn't anyone to be worried about. So yeah, they didn't bother me. Wow. <laughs> Alex, on the other hand, he didn't have the same experience. They didn't like him at all. <laughs> he, actually said, he actually said to me that he absolutely down past one because there's one particular one that I said, don't worry, man absolutely fine this guy this, this guy's cool it's fine he went down past them and he said the bird just started spitting at him and he was sitting he started putting on a scottish accent alex is english and he was like are you me birdie it's robbie how you doing he was like trying to pretend to be me and he said the bird calmed down <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah bird the, yeah i don't know i've gone on a bit of a tangent about the birds but yeah <laughs> That is probably one of the main obstacles uh, you've got to deal with the Scottish sea cliff climbing is, is the birds. <laughs> well, let's um, let's talk about your second film for The Long Hope um, and use this as a way to kind of introduce your YouTube channel and what you're doing with filmmaking because it's interesting. I mean, you're a YouTuber, I suppose, but watching your films, like you're, you're a real filmmaker. I mean, not to disparage anyone else who's a YouTuber and making YouTube films, but these are really good Films really interesting. I'm sure for anyone listening to this who's enjoying this conversation, they would love watching your stuff. How would you describe your films? Like, what makes your films different, I guess, from others? Because there's lots of climbing content out there nowadays, but you definitely have found your own flavor, I guess. You know, is, is one way of saying it. Um, there's definitely like a Robbie sort of vibe to everything that I've watched from your YouTube channel. How would you describe your films and your film style to other people? I mean, it's really nice of you to say that 
uh, I think my films are good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I've, I've, um, I guess first and foremost, I don't think of myself as a YouTuber. I'm a climber, and I want to share my climbing, you know, my climbing trip, my climbing adventures. Um, it's, I guess, looking back at my one of the things I enjoy. I don't actually watch a lot. I'm going to start. I don't actually watch a lot of YouTube. That's the one thing. One first point to make. I don't watch a lot of other YouTubers, other climbing YouTubers. Um, I've watched a couple of Magnuses, um, a couple of Pete Workers and things like that. Um, I do like wedge climbing because it's really raw, like pure, unadulterated bouldering. I really enjoy that. He's got good editing skills. But um, yeah, I don't really massively enjoy watching other videos. But the really funny thing is, I really enjoy watching my videos. <laughs> and do you know why? It's because they're my memories. Mm. I like remembering these amazing trips I've been on and reliving these experiences. And so my approach to these films, basically just to try and recreate as best I can, as close as I can to what I experienced. And, and that's basically it. And if I can, if I can make a film that it's just how I remembered it and, you know, but in a more digestible, more packaged version of it, then I've won. And that's basically what I've gone for. Um, it's, it's definitely, I, I, it took a wee while to find flow as well. I used to um, do the channel with Cullen O'Brien, Irish friend of mine. He's moved down to Bristol, so he doesn't do it with me anymore. And when Cullen was involved, he did a lot more of the editing. Uh, when Cullen left, I got on the editing and I, I just added, I guess, like my own my own flair to it. Um, I guess, like, a you to call yourself a YouTuber, I think you've really got to be pumping out the videos all the time. Um, and it, it, you know, it's, I guess, it's more like a consistent thing. And, and the truth is, I do. I think I'm a bit of a perfectionist with these things. I, I want to share the good stuff, the the really quality films. I want to get the best footage and and, and edit it in a nice way does take a bit longer to do that I, I couldn't just churn out a video every week the other thing is i just don't have the time um i have actually like a lot of video content like or a lot of video a lot of footage from stuff over the last year that i haven't put into uh, films yet because i just haven't got around to editing it but i've got some amazing stuff to share i'm, I'm really excited about but yeah in a nutshell i would say i would say like to answer your question like that is kind of my philosophy on it. I really just want to share um, my my memories. Um, what was really funny, actually, just for thinking of something just there, was um, I did a film uh, with another filmmaker called Alistair Lee. He's like a pretty well-known British filmmaker um, a few years ago uh, about a big wall and climbing trip I did in Madagascar called Blood Moon. And I remember I didn't see the film until the premiere aired like on the big screen, like we had a film festival here in Edinburgh and he showed it at it. And I remember him telling me at the start of the, at the start of the, before the film started, he was like, now Robbie, the film might not be exactly how you remember the climbing trip. Um, so just be wary of that. And I was like, Jesus, what's going to, what's going to happen? Like, what's this, what's this going to be like? And then when I watched it, actually, it was exactly how I remembered it. So I actually kind of was like, didn't really know what he was talking about. But yeah, I mean, I guess like uh, there's always going to be a little bit of creative license sometimes with 
the way films come out, some of the timelines might be slightly different to make it a bit easier watching. But if the essence of the film is 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 there, if that if if it feels like that's what it felt like at the time, then I feel that's kind of what I'm going for, really. That's awesome, man. It's it's interesting to hear you describe that because you're kind of describing in a way um, how I feel about the podcast and. I'm going to risk sounding like a total narcissist here, but I don't I don't listen to many other climbing podcasts these days simply because I put out one of these every week and I'm saturated, you know, like I don't have the bandwidth for it. But also because I think I think my podcast is my favorite climbing podcast. Yeah. But it's <laughs> That's <laughs> but it's, all right, man. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but it makes perfect sense, right? Like it's not because of me. It's not because I love listening to my own voice and in fact when I listen to myself right now, I'm probably going to be cringing. But so many of the conversations I've had the opportunity of of having with people on this show, I mean, they're like the my favorite conversations I've had in my life, you know? I mean, they're like with heroes of mine talking about things that are, I'm literally only asking about the things that are the most interesting to me, you know? So like, how could it not be fun to go back and revisit those conversations and hear from people again? And and it is, it's, it's like, you know, every week I'm kind of like storing these little time capsules on the internet and it's it's a really cool thing. And yeah, I mean, to, to do what you're doing and incorporate video into that and add music to it and everything. I mean, that's another thing is that like my editing process, I don't put out totally raw interviews. I edit them just a little bit, just to kind of tighten them up, clean them up. I might cut out sections uh, that feel like they take away from the flow of the conversation or they're distracting or whatever. But it, to me, it makes it feel more like the experience that I had. Cause when you're actually having the conversation, you're so immersed in it, you know, you don't notice little distractions. You don't notice little filler words or things like that. And I imagine for you, like adding the music and editing and everything, it almost maybe brings you back even more to that experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's funny. I don't want to burn bridges here, but <laughs> um, like, you know, I was thinking about I was actually at a friend's, my friend, my friend Johnny, I was at his place in Greece and he, his grandfather wrote a book about their family, but he wrote 10 books about their family. And I was, I remember reading these books um, whilst on the trip and I thought, well, that's an amazing thing to have, um, you know, a physical manifestation of like the history of your family. And I remember thinking, I was like, well, what, what do I have? about me that has any permanence in this world. And then I was like, I have made some really cool climbing films that are online. They're not going anywhere. And my children and my grandchildren will be able to access those. And probably even beyond that, you know, no doubt about it. They'll be able to access those so long as the world hasn't burned to a crisp that time. <laughs> and um I thought that's amazing. And there's nothing I have put out that I'm embarrassed about. I think if I was doing like YouTube videos about, you know, taking a weightlifter, flipping, climbing or something, um, or, do you know what I mean? Like those like kind of cringy videos. Um, I don't know that a lot of YouTubers do where they jumping around doing different things. I would maybe be a bit more embarrassed about that sort of stuff. But the truth is like, I, I'm a climber and I'm sharing my my life as a climber in the most honest way I can. And I would be really, I would be really happy if my 
descendants, you know, watch these videos, you know, my children, my grandchildren, whatever, and watch these videos and we're like, oh, that's really cool. My grandfather was a climber and did these first ascents and maybe they will be climbers and maybe they'll be inspired to go and repeat my roots because of these videos. I guess like these videos are just like another form of like media, like the way that that book is for Johnny's family, you know, that's like a, just some sort of like way of like keeping track of what you've done with your life or, you know, where you've been. And I, I think that was really cool. So it's a modern way of doing that, isn't it? It's like a diary kind of in a way. That's and that, awesome. and that's, that's another reason why I, I, I go back and watch a lot of the old videos, the old ones, you know, I watched the Bella Vista one the other day there. Um, and that was me when I was 24. And it's just funny watching it again. It's just like, my God, you know, that was me at 24 years old. My, my first foray into adventure climbing. And since then, look at what I've done. And I've actually got like a little video diary of, of all these little adventures. Mm. It's nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I totally relate to it. And I mean, mentioning, you know, like other YouTubers doing their thing, like to each their own, you know, it makes sense. That's not yeah. your thing. Um, lots of people love that sorts of content. And I'm guessing that the people that are making that stuff really enjoy doing it. You know, I, I can't Jesus, imagine. I that, wonder how. <laughs> well, I just, I can't imagine that you could keep doing that just cause it takes so much work, you know, like you, I can't imagine that you well, could yeah. keep doing it week after week and month after month if you didn't enjoy I mean, it. If, 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 if a lot of them are still doing that when they're in their sixties, I'll be very impressed. Mm. But yeah, I mean, that's why there's a high burnout rate in YouTubers actually. Um, I, this fact isn't coming from me, it's coming from my girlfriend, but she did say that there's a very high burnout rate in professional YouTubers because what happens is they do a type of content to bring in the views and bring in the subscribers um, because it it's very good at getting like a, a wide net. But if it doesn't have, if it doesn't speak really honestly to who they are, then eventually they they get they grow tired of it. Mm. Um, and 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 I mean, Mary's pretty clued up on this sort of stuff, so I take her word for it. But um, it makes sense. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, eventually it just feels like a job, I imagine. Exactly, yeah, I think it does. I think there's a lot of really famous YouTubers who have done things like that. Whereas I guess for me, as so long as I'm, I wouldn't make a film that I hated, you know, um, or me doing something that I didn't enjoy. So hopefully that won't happen. I do find, I mean, I, I do find the process of editing videos very good fun, um, but it's hard work as well. And, you know, I mean, maybe there's i i feel like i've got a bit of a sweet spot in the moment where i can produce some videos every year that are really good and it seems like enough um i don't think i could maybe do more without sacrificing something else mm. and for me first and foremost climbing always comes first i'm a climber i want to go climbing i don't want I, I, filmmaking is like a part of who i am but it's not the number one thing are you relying on that for income is that part of how you no, make a living? Okay. No, 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 not at all. It's like, um, in fact, any money it does make, it makes like a little bit of money. I've got a patron um, and uh, I've got some really great like patron patrons who put like a couple of quid in every month and, you know, all in it's like a hundred quid, hundred quid or something a month. And it allows me to get some extra gear or even like if I get some friends to come out and help shoot, I'll pay for their fuel expenses, things like that. And YouTube brings in like some pennies as well. It's not very much money, um, but 
it's all great and it all just feeds into the channel. I don't take any money for me personally from that. Mm. Um, my career is, um, my, my, my salary is built up between working with sponsors, Patagonia, Edelred, Scarpa, and, um, and also doing bits of coaching, bits of route setting. Yesterday, I was actually opening up a climbing wall, a brand new climbing wall in a local, uh, a Glaswegian school. And I set them a few routes and coached the kids afterwards. Nice. I mean, things like that are like, they're few and far between, but they're really nice. You know, I even got to cut the ribbon. It was <laughs> awesome. I've never that's, done that before. Uh, it was actually very, cool. very nerve-wracking. <laughs> nerve-wracking. I there with the scissors and I was like, Jesus, is this going to work? And everyone was watching me. And I took a few cuts and all the kids were laughing. <laughs> Well, they could see I was struggling a little bit with it. They just sabotage you, give you a dull pair of scissors. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, things like that occasionally come along. And this random, like, Suzuki shoot I was doing today, I mean, that's really nice. It's just like a random thing, you know? Mm. Sometimes they come along and help pay the bills. But ultimately, I'm not relying on those sorts of things. So, yeah. Gotcha. Well, I have another question about the new Long Hope film, but I just want to say this real quickly, just in case I pissed anybody off. I just want to make it really clear. I respect the shit out of all the other podcasters out there making climbing podcasts. And I really love a lot of them. I think they're really good. It's just like, I'm just glad that other people found their own thing. You know, it's really fun that we can all just kind of explore our own curiosity and, and, um, yeah, for me, like doing this show is just these really fun little time capsules of what I was curious about at the time and just a great conversation I got to have with someone who I was inspired by. So yeah, super grateful for it. The entire time he was saying that, he was back, he was he was mouthing to me that he thought the other podcasters were rubbish. <laughs> and he, his was the best. Did you see me crossing yeah. my fingers? <laughs> yeah, he crossed his fingers. He just got text at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay so the question i just have a note in front of me about the long hope video why has this new video been so much fun to work on oh um well i was really lucky to have um one of my sponsors edelred um they as well as supporting the trip they uh, paid for a friend of mine ryan balhari who's a adventure photographer and sort of cameraman to come along on the trip and basically help me capture the best footage. And that was a huge difference to the first year because the first year um, we didn't have that. So um, basically the footage is absolutely incredible. Um, yeah, and you know, we did like some interviews like with me and Alex throughout the whole period that really captured, I guess, just like the whole experience, um, which, was, which was amazing. Um, yeah, and it, it just like editing, editing that film, it just didn't seem hard at all. I'd say like the entire time, I was just enjoying the process. I was laughing so much at like little bits, and um, it was just, it was just a really fun experience to kind of relive that trip again through the editing process. And because the footage quality was so good, there was so much of it. It was just like, it's like being a painter with all the colors at your disposal (laughs) with anything you wanted to do. You know, you just got everything there and all the pieces are right there in front of you and you can just put them in any way you want. Um, And so, yeah, I I think for that reason, it it made it um, a really good film. Um, Well, made it a really good experience making the film. As to whether it's a good film, personally, I think it's a good film. (laughs) 
I, I, I honestly do. I, I think it's 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 um still up for consideration at Kendall Mountain Festival, but I fingers crossed it's gonna get in. I think it deserves to be on a big screen. If you guys are anyone listening to this is gonna be at Kendall, well, so long as it gets in, I really it'd be great if you guys came along, got the tickets or whatever that you need to go and see it. Um fingers crossed it gets in. But um but yeah, I think it's it's great and it, it, it ended on a ended on a high but there was a lot of ups and downs throughout the whole thing and yeah it's much much more than just a climbing film you know it's a film about you know going somewhere wild nature partnership you know and there's always a bit of uncertainty i mean it's obviously i climbed the climb so at least going into the film you kind of have some certainty that <laughs> you know i'm going to get to the top but that's that's out with that it's not really important because I think the film covers a lot more than than just that. So yeah, I think I think it'll be a, a good film for folk to watch. That's awesome. I'm excited to see it. When will this thing end up on your YouTube channel for people to watch? Literally, I mean, Kendall Mountain Festival is like November 18th or something. And I will put it up on the channel as soon as that festival's over. They they always want the premiere of these films. So you kind of have to, you're out there win with bit with that. Um, otherwise, I would have put it up a long time ago. To be honest, man, say this really quietly because I don't want Kendall to hear. But <laughs> I wasn't even that bothered about putting in a Kendall. It was, it was actually my girlfriend, like Mary. She was like, she watched it. And she was like, oh, this is actually quite good. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie, you finally made a good one. <laughs> yeah, she was like, this is actually it's actually worthy of like a festival <laughs> that's awesome like, yeah so i was like all right okay i'll put it in for the festival and and i do like the guys at kendall like they're all really nice and they were really positive about it as well so um you, you put it in you put it in for um you put it in through like this uh, online thing and then you just got to go on the website and watch and it has like a little thing saying in consideration so that means it's still in consideration so i, I watch every day to see if that's going to change the <laughs> It's in, mm. but it's but it's still in consideration. So yeah, just fingers crossed. And Kendall's the local Scottish film festival, I assume. No, Kendall Mountain Festival is the biggest uh, outdoor festival in the UK. Okay, it's in the Lake District. Kendall's like a small town, in the Lake District. Beautiful little place. Um, and I, I do tend to go every year, but um, it's nice when you're going there with something to show rather than going there to mitch your own. Um, so yeah, it's going to be nice this year because I'm going to be like, yeah, I'm the filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> well, nice, man. I'll be I'll be rooting for you in your film. I hope you I hope you see that in consideration thing switch the right way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I will tell. Awesome. Well, let's wrap up here. I've just got one more yeah. patron question for you that I think is a great question, and then I want to hear what's next for you. What you're excited about moving forward with your own climbing. And filmmaking, if you have goals or, or ideas for that that you're excited about. Uh, this is a question from Gino. Why does Robbie consider himself a professional climber and not a professional athlete? How does he distinguish the two? Is that, oh. does, does that resonate? Is that something that makes sense to you? Yeah, yeah, it does. And it's, it's funny because I remember the first time I worked with uh, Drew Smith, who's like a pretty well-known um, climbing photographer in the US. And I remember him calling me an athlete. I was like, I'm not an athlete. What are you talking about? He's like, I was like, I'm, I'm a climber. And he's like, yeah, but you're an athlete. You know, you train and you like, you know, 
eat well and you know, you're very dedicated and focused. And I was like, like, yeah, I guess so. But I've never thought of myself like that. Athletes are people that go to the Olympics or go to competitions, you know, like that's an athlete. Maybe I was an athlete when I was younger. Now I'm a climber. I guess because I've always prescribed to the sort of like, you know, climbers climber, you know, like we're just, you know, the climbers, we go climbing, we go to the pub afterwards, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's just a bit more relaxed. Interestingly enough, like I struggle even with like calling myself a professional climber. I always say professional with quotation marks because I make a living within the climbing industry. I don't think of myself as like Magos or Andra who are paid to be the best climbers in the world. But then at the same time, you know, they're they're doing kind of similar stuff to me. So it's, I guess, I'm, yeah, again, my, my girlfriend, Mary, she always says, you should consider yourself a professional climber because you are a professional climber. Yeah. And I, th- I think I'm becoming, I'm getting more around to, to that idea. Um, but I, I just, I guess when people outside of climbing ask me what I do for a living, easy to say i'm a professional climber but when i say that it sounds they they understand it as oh professional footballer professional climber same thing whereas it's kind of not because i'm not getting paid millions for <laughs> climbing a rock yeah. you know yeah. Jeez, i mean i'd be a lot yeah i'd be amazing if i was getting paid millions for going climbing um but yeah um i think i guess i yeah sometimes struggle a bit with the terminology there mm-hmm. first and foremost i just think of myself as a climber who has made a living out of the climbing industry and, and to be honest that's all i ever want to do mm. and as long as i can keep climbing and doing the same thing i'm doing now i think i'll be very happy got it so it's it's more of a it's mostly a mindset and kind of self-identity thing yeah i guess so yeah okay yeah it makes sense to me <laughs> Well, what's next for you? What are you excited about? You got goals right now? Yeah, I do. Um, so I've got this project um, south of Edinburgh, an hour and a half. There's a beautiful area, northern England called Northumberland. It's where I spent a lot of my earlier years. That's where I spent a lot of my time climbing in the winters over the last 15 years. And there's an old Malcolm Smith route called Transcendence. Um, it's Pockets. It's really hard. It's probably like a font. It's like, I, I think it's 80, 80 plus boulder. Um, it's only been 11 done. 11 V12. Yeah, damn. Yeah, it's only done a few times. Dan Varian's done it. I know he was recently on your podcast. I mean, he polished it up in a session, but that's to be expected from someone with fingers as strong as him. I'm not like that. Um, and uh, I, I think that it's, you know, compared with like other boulder problems I've done, because it is just a boulder problem. I would say it is in that sort of 80, 80 plus bracket. Um, but then again, pockets, I, I struggle on pockets, so who knows. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my project at the moment. I actually did it on a shunt last uh, earlier this year, right at the beginning of the year, and then the weather got really bad and uh, didn't manage to get back on it. Um, so this, I'm, I'm, I'm back training now for it. I've got replicas set, and I'm hoping to start getting down there from this weekend. So yeah. Um, yeah, watch the space of that one. But um, probably my next big project is something I discovered um, a few months ago. Um, I went climbing in this area of Scotland in the far north, found this amazing granite crag, most perfect granite I think I've ever climbed on in Scotland, um, but very different. Pocketed granite, remarkable. Two finger and one finger pockets. Wow. Uh, yeah. 
absolutely remarkable. I've never been anywhere quite like it. And uh, I found two really, really hard trad lines on it that are probably going to be in the sort of E10 sort of bracket, at least 8B plus climbing, but possibly as hard as 8C plus. So between 14A and 14C climbing with on gear, very bold in places. But yeah, I've only had like a couple of sessions on it and yeah, I'm, I'm wanting to go up and spend like a week up there to, to kind of dial in what I need to do to do these climbs. And then probably they'll be my projects for next spring. Um, so I'm not worried about anybody else going up there and doing them because they're in the middle of fucking nowhere. <laughs> and like just, yeah, nobody's going to be going up there. Um, and uh, they're actually just, uh, it's a beautiful place as well. It's a hell of a big walk up a big steep hill. Um, and you'll definitely be up there on your own. So, yeah, that's probably my my next my next goal. That's awesome. Next yeah, um, I recently had Neil Gresham on the show, and we talked quite a bit about his root lexicon. And uh, one of the videos of yours that I've watched is you doing Impact Day. The V the E eight there uh, yeah. shares the yeah. same start. Um, yeah, any interest in that one? Any interest in going and trying Neil's root lexicon? Yeah, actually, yeah, I'd love to try lexicon. Um, I looked across at it when I was on Impact Day. It looked like a really good climb. Bomber Rock um, looks quite a fun trad climb to try as trad climbs go because it looks from and from talking to different people about it, it looks relatively safe for the most part. Obviously, it looks like a massive fall from the very end. Um, it's a I guess it's a question mark at the very end how safe it is. But um, I think what's quite cool about it is, you know, it looks like you could climb quite far up that wall. And if you knew that you weren't going to do it, you could just let go, mm. you know what I mean? Um, and just take a big whipper. Um, and then I think, I remember talking to Dave about it, and he said to me that he felt that he would know when he was going to do it, and then that would be the time he turned it on for the very end. Um, so I think, yeah, it's not. it looks like a fun track climb in that respect, like a wee bit sporty for the most part, with, a, with just like a, few moves of scariness right at the very end um and like 8b was it is it meant to be 8b or 8b plus or something i mean that's a good grade you know it's a it's a hard grade to have as a trad route but the style it looks like very power endurancey it's the kind of climb that i think you can like it would probably suit me quite well compared to something like what we do in the shadows like what we do in the shadows really anti-style really bouldery and hard um hard moves which i struggle with whereas lexicon looks more like resistant like probably not any one of the moves maybe that hard but all together they're very hard and and that'll be the, the tricky bit to it so yeah i think what i'd probably do with lexicon if i went and tried it would i'd probably you know who knows maybe maybe, maybe if i if i get these things in the spring maybe i could have a look at lexicon in the summer or something but i probably want to be i probably want to have quite a bit of um you know uh good fitness um, from having done another project leading up to trying Lexicon, because I think it's that sort of climb. You definitely want to be feeling pretty confident, you know, on that sort of terrain. Well, hell yeah, man. I, th- I think you've, uh, you've onsided this conversation, Robbie. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, and I think I'm going to have to abseil off because, um, <laughs> because I'm definitely a hundred percent going to be late for Charles. Oh no. He's probably like, 
He's probably arrived right now at the train station. Oh no, I'm no. sorry. I've been greedy with you. Okay, I'll let you no, go. Sorry, it's fine. But yeah, this was this was awesome, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for running across the city to be here. <laughs> I really enjoyed the conversation. I've got a few more things on my list, and um, you know, one of the things I think we could talk about is uh, doing your lattice test and what you learned from that experience and how it's affected your training. So maybe we can oh, have yeah. you back on and do a follow up sometime. That'd be really fun. Yeah, absolutely. No, that'd be great. I'd love to. But yeah, thanks. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. And um, for people listening, I'll be sure to link to all things Robbie Phillips in the show notes. I'll link to your YouTube channel, as well as some of my favorite videos that I've seen so far of yours. And um, I will link to the Love 3, the Taz Love 3 rope solo device in the show notes as well. Yeah, you can find all those things in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. And thanks again, Robbie. Great to talk to you. Oh, thanks very much, man. That's good. That's kind of the way it's perfect timing because I just got to go out the door now, get in the car and go pick him up. <laughs> so, uh, you just have to wait a bit. But he's, he's all good. Nice. He's a costly old sea dog. So <laughs> just, uh... Perfect. All right, dude. Catch you later. All right. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Robbie as much as I did. I had a great time talking to Robbie and I do highly recommend his films. They're super fun. I've watched several of them now. So head on over to YouTube and subscribe to Robbie and check out his films. You can find a link to his YouTube channel in the show notes for this episode at thenuggetclimbing.com. There's a link to the show notes right there in your podcast app if you scroll down. And I put a lot of goodies over there. I always put a lot of work into the show notes and try to put everything that we talked about all in one place for your convenience. Before you go, don't forget to check out the Grasshopper Board. Check them out on Instagram at grasshopperclimbing or visit grasshopperclimbing.com to find out where you can find a board near you and try it out for yourself. Tell them I sent you and when you're ready to get your very own Grasshopper Board, you can save big money on your order. Also, be sure to check out Rhino Skin Solutions. It's fall here in Utah and in many parts of the Northern Hemisphere. It's time to get out there and send, and Rhino's line of antiperspirant products are a game changer for climbing in warm or humid conditions. Check out rhinoskinsolutions.com and use code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order of performance cream, dry spray, and tip juice so you can get your skin in the best possible condition to send your projects this fall. I also love the repair cream. That's another one that I use all the time. And finally, don't forget to check out the Arc'teryx film Free As Can Be. I watched it over the summer. I loved it. And if you love climbing, I'm sure you'll dig it too. Head over to YouTube and search for Arc'teryx Free As Can Be or use the direct link right there in your podcast app to watch the full 31-minute film for free. And that is it, my friends. Thank you for listening to the very end. Best of luck on your projects. I hope you're enjoying the fall season wherever you are listening to this. Hope you're getting out climbing. Much love to all of you. I hope you have an amazing week and we will see you next time. Like we do it.